Good morning, all. Thursday. Thursday. Thursday, um, July 14. Another day in paradise. Never a dull moment. We got a great show in store today. Ivy Zellman, who needs a little introduction, the preeminent housing analyst in the country. I've had the pleasure of knowing Ivy for 20 plus years. Um, I knew her when she was a nobody. Now she's a big shot, and we're so thrilled that she's willing to come and share her wisdom with us. Um, we've got a great space here. As everyone knows we're all just trying to help each other and trying to get the truth out to folks to help empower them to make um, the right investment decisions. And it's really just fantastic. We had Larry Jello in the room on Tuesday. Now I've got Ivy in the room today to help us on housing. I know it's a subject which is near and dear to uh, most of us in this room. Let me just uh, go on a little bit of a rant for a couple minutes and we're gonna get right into it. Um, and we can revisit some of these other topics later in the show. Yesterday was all about um, inflation CPI. Um, it's funny, <laughs> watching the talking heads on mainstream media just blows my mind. Uh, I tend to watch Bloomberg television more than uh, the Cartoon Network, CNBC, they're better. But even they, no one could have predicted this. Nobody predicted this. My God, if you just were on Twitter and read the Cleveland Fed, I mean, they were predicting 10%. Okay, they're a little over the top, but it shouldn't really come to surprise to anybody. And look, nobody knows the future. Um, we're all just trying to give it our best. If we're any good at this, we're along 40% of the time. But... The same crowd that was telling you inflation was transitory a year ago, they're the ones that have been saying for month after month after month, it's peaking. And that's the wrong question. I can totally get that maybe it's peaked, but that's the wrong question. The right question is, how long will it take for inflation to come down to a level where the Fed can start easing up on the brakes a little bit. They have this dream of, you know, 2.4% inflation by the end of 2023. To paraphrase my inner Jeremy Irons from Margin Call, you know, please explain to me how it's going to happen. Pretend I'm a small child or a golden retriever. As I've said it once, I'll say it a million times. You need to have a significant slowdown, recession, and there I said the R word, recession. People have to lose their jobs in order to get inflation under control. There is no Goldilocks. You've got to do the right thing and throw the economy into recession, free up the slack resources to cause pricing to, to come off the boil. Not just, and the issue isn't, you know, will inflation be, come down at 5%. It's still too high. So for me, it's a question about how long is it going to take inflation to come down to an acceptable level. And the longer that, that takes, the longer monetary policy has to remain restrictive, the worse it is for risk assets. And as all of you know, have been in this room with me for the last six, seven months, equities continue to represent return-free risk, in my opinion. So that was all the excitement yesterday. Some other things today, and I was going back and forth with three aces. He direct messaged me, something's going to break, you're damn straight. You got DXY at 108.91, dollar making, I don't know, 20-year new high. 
the yen for 139, the euro briefly broke parity. I mean, the wheels are coming off this thing. The great Michael Howe, I urge everyone to go back and listen to the interview he did with Real Vision earlier this week, explaining how Europe is most certainly already in recession. The U.S., we are in one, we're about to go into one. Let's not argue over what month it's going to happen. The housing market is rolling over, and that's what our guest today is going to talk about. For those of you who saw the Lucky Lopez video about repos and automobiles, you would see that trouble's brewing in the automobile industry as well. And then you read some of the news coming out of Europe where they're going to be turning off the gas. The Russians are going to be turning off the gas. French electricity prices up 8x. And you look at earnings. Earnings, and this is probably the key point, the key point. I think we are now descending into a prolonged bear market for corporate profits. We can debate that later on the show, but I think earnings, you know, Michael Belk was in here a few weeks ago, said 110, whatever. That's not the point. The point is direction and, and, and depth. You know, street consensus is for $240 S&P earnings for next year. Anyone want to take the over under 200? Fine, bring it to me. 180, bring it to me. 160, bring it to me. You want to bet on 110? No. But as the great Michael Kantrowitz has said once, he said numerous times in this room, and we heard it first here, right, Aces? Kantrowitz now saying it on CNBC. The first half of the bear market was all about valuation compression. Now starts the earnings downturn. So again, equities continue to represent return free risk. What should you do? For a normal, well-adjusted person, hold a lot of cash, be defensive, go to the beach for the summer, you're not going to miss anything. If you got larceny in your heart, you take too much risk, short some things. But I have no sympathy, no sympathy for anyone who comes in this room and leaves and is still long. And don't come crying back to me on the October lows and we're down another 20% from here. Because, you know, Cantor's calling 3,000. Michael Wilson, Warren Stanley's calling 3,000. Michael Howell, Michael Bell. I just, you know, I don't have all the answers. I know how to ask the questions. When I get lost, I turn to people I respect. I said this in the room the other week. And when a uniform of the smart people I look up to are all singing from the same prayer book, that informs me. The smartest guys I know in this business are negative. Someone asked me on Twitter the other day, anyone I respect bullish? No. Absolutely not. What about Jim Cramer? I said, anyone I can respect. I stopped. All right, let's get to the business at hand. So we're very privileged to have Ivy Zellman with us. Um, Ivy has uh, knows forgotten more about housing than I will ever know. I will try to keep up with her and ask some of my intelligent questions. But this is going to be a lot of fun because I know a lot of you have been asking for a housing guru the last couple months. And uh Ivy played a little bit of hard to get, but we finally got her. So here she is. So Ivy, I want to welcome you to the room. Uh, and maybe it'd be a good place to start off. People, I mean, you have kind of a low profile. You're on CNBC and some of the other social media from time to time, but you're not as highly uh, exposed as some other um, uh, talking head gurus. I don't want to call you talking head. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about your background and what you do and what Zelman Associates does. Ivy, the floor is yours. Great. Well, thank you so much. And great choice on the song, George. Love the opening. Um, and it's my pleasure to be on in the space with everyone and uh, appreciate the opportunity. Well, I, I guess I, I'm an old dog now. I could say I've been following the housing market for over 30 years. Um, but given that, you know, 
I guess the new, um, when your fifties is the old, you know, forties or whatever. Um, but I started my career off, um, a little later than most cause I went to, um, uh, night school to put myself through college. I was working full time. And when I graduated, I, uh, from George Mason university that no one ever heard of because, um, state school until we went to the final four many years, decades later. But, um, uh, I got a job working at Solomon Brothers um, in their two-year analyst financial analyst program, investment banking, which I hated. Um, but it was a great bridge. And after the two years, I applied to Harvard, Stanford, and Northwestern and worked really hard on my GMATs and my essays. And they, they didn't want me. They rejected me. So I just needed a job in the midst of a recession. And uh, the lights were going out on back in the Treasury scandal when John Goodfriend had to step down. And I just got a, needed a job and got a job in equity research as an associate working for Bruce Harding, who picked up housing as a favor because Bob Bishop walked out and said, I'm out of here, who uh, had very successful um, investor running Impala, uh, buy side guy. Anyway, long story short, after Solly uh, equity research for six years, they got bought out by Smith Barney and I lost my job. I thought I was devastated, but Credit Suisse offered me an opportunity. I worked there 10 years until... Uh, left in 07 uh, in the midst of what was clearly uh, uh, beginnings of the, well, we thought that, that we knew that the crisis was already starting, but the magnitude of it. And I started Zellman in October of 07. And um, we were independent up until July of last year when we sold a majority stake to Walker Dunlop, who is a public company that focuses predominantly on the commercial real estate market, multifamily uh, providing financing and investment sales and a whole bunch of other stuff. So uh, that's sort of the summary. And Zellman has been focused um, and my career, we're exclusively focused on macro housing um, and the top 50 MSAs and anything to do with housing in our ecosystem from new construction, existing home sales, home prices, home improvement, the rental market, mortgage market. I'm sure I'll forget something in there, but uh, really stay, stick to our niche, which is housing. So I'll, I'll turn it back to you, George. Happy to be on. That's great, Ivy. So there's a lot to talk about. Um, I will put some slides up as we go along. You, Ivy forwarded me her deck earlier this morning. I'll throw a couple slides up, but we don't want to have death by PowerPoint. However, um, oftentimes it's you know, more visual. It's, it's, it's interesting to see slides. So let's start from sort of the general high level, and then we'll get progressively into it. Um, so Ivy, where are we in the cycle? Um, you know, housing totally got destroyed in the great financial crisis, you know, it was the epicenter of, uh, all the mortgage-backed security nonsense and whatever. And it's been, we've been in this great up and to the right liquidity driven, um, economy. It's pulled housing along with it. I know we had a big housing deficit going back a number of years ago. So where are we in the cycle right now with respect to housing, Ivy? Could you contextualize it for us, please? Um, sure. So our view is that housing has peaked. Uh, if we talk about the level of um, demand or the level of new home sales, existing home sales, while we had already seen existing home sales rolling over in 21 and into 22, it was really a lack of supply. But now it, the, the, the deceleration we're seeing is clearly demand driven. So we're definitely past the peak and the market is um, rapidly deteriorating. And I, I think that we're seeing the, res the impact really from predominantly the surge in rates and 
very stretched affordability, like almost at record levels of stretched affordability. So uh, we, we expect that it's going to be a continuation and more rapid than we've seen in any prior period as the consumer is much more in tune to the information flow that's available to them. So that's useful. So I, I, I'm, I'm putting the slides up as we speak. So um, those of us that uh, sort of, you know, housing tourists, we see these uh, articles, we see these graphs, and you, maybe you can uh, give us a little uh, granularity to this. For like the typical home, which is, I don't know, 400000 bucks or whatever it is, I've lost track of it, 400000 bucks, and for the typical payment and blah, blah, blah. I've seen all these things. They say, you know, the average payment in the average home was X a year ago, and now it's like, up 80% of some crazy number like that. I mean, is it, I mean, is, as affordability, affordability is pretty goddamn awful as compared to the overall scheme of things, isn't that? Absolutely. Uh, Entry-level buyers right now, the monthly payment to purchase a new home is up about 50% year over year. And I think that what we've seen in, in the last, call it 30 days, a big surge in the number of people that had contracts that are canceling. And some of the cancellations uh, in the new home backlog is a result of builders scrubbing their backlog, especially for the built-to-order builders, where they're actually a, a person assigned a contract and is waiting for their home to be completed. Uh, what you're seeing are people that no longer, when you underwrite them at the new rate, can afford it. So they're actually canceling the customer, but you're also having customers that have signed contracts uh, within the last six months that are, are canceling. And cancellation rates, just to give you some perspective, have historically averaged between 15 to 20% in the new home market. And that fell to single digits, um, you know, 5% uh, prior to this, you know, call it last six months. And now, just according to our data, nationally, we're at 17%. But we have a weekly data series that we publish that's focused just on Arizona, Nevada, and California MSAs. And that number is running about 34%. Whoa, whoa, and, whoa. Stop press, stop press. 34%? <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, 34%. And it was 36th of what the prior week. It's been averaging over the last three weeks, call it 34. So it's weekly data. So we try not to get, you know, too uh, worked up over weekly data, but we're extrapolating that and know that our weekly data series on those three states and those MSAs have been over 90% historically correlated to the new home market. And we follow the publicly traded home builders that account for nearly 50% of the new home market. And we also survey about 20% of the new home market through a proprietary survey network of, of C-suite home building executives. So we really have our pulse on the market, but you can really see, George, significant differences in can rates. So anecdotally, yesterday we hosted um, several executives on um, what we call a spotlight call for institutional clients to discuss specifically the Phoenix market, which is the epicenter of everything, the boom bust market, and where we see the most non-primary demand that's been surging that we can get into. And the builder on our call just threw out that its can rate was 45% and um, acting as if you know, that wasn't the end of the world. And, and I talked to a builder in Orlando yesterday, his can rate was 55%, but he's like, well, it was really our doing because we were canceling people. 
so self-induced. So it's it's changing rapidly. Um, and I, Ivy, I, 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 Ivy, Ivy, you gotta write a piece if you want. I'll come and you know I like to turn the table and cause trouble. Um, I think this is redefining the term cancel culture. I've never heard heard this. This 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 trumps anything else I've heard. Ivy, let me ask you a question. In your experience, have you ever seen numbers this high? We did during the great financial crisis. Uh, I think that you were seeing, you know, cans probably even exceeding the current aggregate numbers we've seen. And I think that what we have to appreciate is that a lot of the backlog is also speculative. If we're focused just on new home single family right now, as we not only have, you know, builders that were shifting from a build to order model because of their inability to capture um, the rising costs of materials and labor and risking that by the time they completed the home and, you know, typically 75 to call it 120 days and it's at 200 days, their costs could be up 20% from where they signed a contract. We saw a big shift to builders just going and starting homes speculatively and releasing those homes closer to framing or when they were installing cabinets to mitigate that squeeze on margin. So you do see a big difference between where margins are for the build to order builders that, that stuck that, that stayed with that model versus those that are doing more speculative building. But I'd say the backlog, which is at the highest levels for single families since 2006, is a probably a third to maybe 40% speculative, which also includes the most popular, sexiest, prettiest girls to dance, the built for uh, speculative product that's um, blanketing tertiary markets in a highly concentrated way in the smile states. So, okay, so let's go down that rabbit hole a little bit and then we'll come back up. Um, and we've got some really smart uh, listeners in the room. I hope Jackson comes up because he's, he's all over this. So you were talking about Bill Torrent. Um, there's also, you know, cycles don't repeat, but they rhyme. So you got Bill Torrent. You have the institutionalization of the market with a lot of financial players, the Blackstones of the world. You have Airbnb, and some would suggest that that's uh, hidden inventory, and that will come back on the market, uh, you know, when prices go the wrong way. So how do you think about, and, and Jackson will weigh in, in fact, you know what, I'm just going to stop right here, because <laughs> Jackson's here. Usually we hold the questions, but he knows far more. He's school. I've learned so much from Jackson. And so I'm concerned. My general question is this, but then Jackson, before Ivy speaks, maybe you can pile on. I, I listen to Jackson. And I hear about the Airbnbs and the build the rent and all this other stuff. It kind of suggests that, okay, we don't have the excess in mortgage-backed securities finance market. We had no way, but we got this different problem. So I don't know, Jackson, how do you want to put the question? Or did I channel my inner Jackson reasonably well, Jackson? Jackson, speak up, please. You channeled it fairly well. Um, I just wanted to piggyback on what all what all is being said here. I'd be grateful to have you here. A little bit about I, my background. Nice to meet you. You too. I worked uh, with Lafrac and now I'm with Starwood. Um, anyway, long story short, I'm just seeing all this. I want to ask you really quick, if we may start here. I think the supply numbers are so distorted because of the speculative behavior that we've talked about and the monkey see, monkey do is the term I use, you know, everybody became a flipper, everybody became a home improvement, everybody bought an NOO. And I know that the I've been working a little bit with Taylor Marr from uh, Redfin, because I'm really trying to get that NOO data rock solid. And I know it's really hard to find. I know the Airbnbs, Verbos, etc. aren't the biggest piece. But with rent spiking the way they did, 
it just became such a speculative move. I think the supply narrative is wrong because the supply number is distorted by the speculation. Any thoughts on that? Absolutely. I, I think that we've been, you know, highly focused on the demand side and seeing, you know, cash purchases, according to NAR, in the first quarter were up year over year. Oh, this is a two-year change, sorry, up uh, 46%, whereas mortgage closings were down one. And if you look at the fourth quarter um, year over year, up 43% for cash purchases and 13% for mortgage um, for mortgage purchase, just to give you the perspective. It, but what we've also looked at through public record data, as well as just core logic um, information that we're, we're aggregating from them and partnering with them, the non-primary, which is what we call it, Jackson, and we think about non-primary for those that you know might not appreciate what that includes, second home buyers, private investors, institutional investors, and the institutional investors could also incorporate what we call the intermediary liquidity providers, iBuyers. So there's been tremendous speculation in aggregate. That number or the latest sort of first queue, we don't have two queue yet, aggregated to about 24% of transactions. And we think that's even understating it because we really can't determine again um, how much of what people claim they're buying might be used for primary. But what we know is that that number was running at about 20% prior to COVID, even 19%. So just the rate of change nationally. And I think you really have to focus Jackson in on the, you know, hottest markets, you know, the, the industry tends to operate more like sheep, you know, they all follow one another. And it's, is it a surprise that Austin has got a very strong job market that all, you know, the, the capital goes to Austin. So they kind of follow the, the same pattern of where they're, where they're going, but the private investors, you know, speculating significantly in markets like Boise or in um, Montana or, you know, pick a, pick a market, Phoenix, anywhere you, they think they're going to make a quick flip. Those are the ones that are canceling too. Because when I was chatting with a builder in Boise and home prices are up 70% and they're like, oh yeah, we're seeing price cuts. We're seeing incentives. We're seeing huge cancellations. And I said, so when people are canceling, are they saying why? And this builder said, oh, they're just the investors that, you know, realize home prices have peaked. Or chatting with uh, a data provider about Phoenix they're saying that listings in the last, just in Phoenix as an example, in the last 15 weeks are up 220%, admittedly off a record low, but just to put that in perspective, if normalized listings in the MSA for greater Phoenix would be 25,000, you know, went from eight, whatever, take the five, 6,000, whatever the number is now in the, in the 16, 70,000, they're adding a thousand a week. Of, of new listings. And, and what they were saying is that they're coming, interestingly, from the deep pocket, you know, wealthiest investors that are acting like they're distressed and they're a stampede for the exits, which include the private investors that might own 15 houses. And, you know, they, now they want to sell 13 because, you know, they, they want to retain two, but they want to monetize and the costs have gone up a lot of owning these properties. So I think it's a lot more prevalent then the market appreciates. But then you have to contrast that with markets where maybe in Atlanta or in Huntsville, Alabama, it may not be as prevalent and the markets are not seeing the same rate or in Raleigh or Charlotte. 
are not seeing the same rate of deterioration, but you're still seeing very weak demand and seasonally worse than normal um, activity and, and increasing can. So, but the severity is much, um, it varies very significantly is, is the way I'd frame it. And I do think the non-primary is a big factor. Jackson, why don't you, uh, you have a follow-up? Otherwise, I'm going to go to Michael. Michael has some insights as well. But Jackson, I, I, I want you to run with it because you've taught us so much about real estate over the last few months. Just, just a brief follow-up, and I just wanted to see if Ivy's on the same page as me. Because one of the arguments I've been making internally and also in these rooms and, and with other people is I don't care if, you know, because everybody continues to use the excuse, the Blackstones, us, uh, the Black Rocks, et cetera. It doesn't matter if it's the big guys. It was still speculative, which skewed the supply that everybody continues to harp on. But I'm with you 100% on that the demand was never really there um, because it became such a speculative boom. And I do feel like the regional starting to finally bleed into the national uh, perspective. No, and, you know, thinking, again, the real-time, you know, transparent information that consumers are, you know, privy to, it, 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 the, the speed and the severity of the rate of change is just exponentially worse than what we saw in the great financial crisis, because that was a slow bleed. So we're just shocked on the rate of change. And, you know, we do these surveys, and we're just hitting record um, rate of change on our metrics for many of the various metrics that we're, we're tracking. So, you know, people say, you know, where are you? And, you know, in June, it looks a hell of a lot worse than, than May. And July is, uh, again, incrementally much worse, at least in the early parts of what we're getting through our conversations and our Western markets report is deteriorating even further. So the rapid pace of it is really coming, we think, from those non-primary sellers now. And, you know, we are seeing with backlogs so high and, and, and the appetite, interestingly, from the, at least so far, from the build for rent capital um, providers is not really changing very much. And the builders are shifting, interestingly, from maybe selling, we have some builders that have been selling on a programmatic basis to build for rent operators as much, as high as 25% of what they are building and developing. And others will say, oh, I only do like 3%. And the more of them within, you know, markets now that are realizing they have backlog that is speculative backlog, they're going to need these built for rent operators. So they're now willing to partner more with them. And from what we're hearing, their appetite has not abated yet. I mean, Starwood's out trying to sell 3,000 units in a portfolio right now. And people are like, do you think the others are going to follow suit? You know, I think that the the risk is that what we're seeing right now, especially iBuyers, they're at least according to the contacts that we have in Phoenix, they're the the biggest sellers in the market right now at, at at rates that they, you know, are just shocked by, and how quickly these iBuyers are trying to exit their positions, as well as again the private investors that might have been the Airbnbs that you referred to. So, you know, we're we're just um, sort of now digesting and aggregating weekly what we're seeing because it's changing so so rapidly. If I could just jump in, and, and I'll go to Michael in a second. I was just listening to you talk, and Jackson, great questions. You know, one of my pet peeves has been, um, I think Julian Brigden coined the term, the excessive hyper-financialization of the economy. 
But so much money has been put in the system. You know, too much monetary stimulus, too much fiscal stimulus. We had the everything bubble. Equities, bonds, commodities, real estate, baseball cards, collectibles, you name it. And you know, the, the listening to you speak, it, it's, 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 it's not just institutionalization, institutionalization of the asset of, of houses, of housing, but also, as you were saying earlier this morning, the, the speed with which the information passes, the internet and everything else, it just, it's really scary to listen to you describe this. I mean, um, you know, in, 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 when you have, when you say 24% of the market's non-primary, that's just a staggering number. Um, Jackson, from where you sit, um, when you look at what your firm is doing or other firms, you think uh, a lot of people are, are or will be soon trying to head for the exit at the same time, Jackson? I do. Um, you know, Ivy's familiar with Barry's work and, and our work. And, you know, we're just we're trying to get ahead of this thing um, because it has just became so speculative. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, people are hanging on. I was going to use one anecdote and then uh, I'll drop down and let everybody else speak. But I wanted to share with Ivy. We were in Lexington, Kentucky recently and just talking to, you know, people in that community, how everyone piled in late 2020 to 2021 to be a a bourbon Airbnb or a Verbo or, you know, horse trot, et cetera. And, and they pushed all the residents out and now the residents are coming back because these guys are trying to get off the lily pad, so to speak. So. Well, you know, I find when I hear those anecdotes, you know, it's, it's more that they're willing to admit it now, but when you're chatting with them while it's going on, no, we're not really seeing much in the non-primary. These are true buyers. Maybe it's a co-primary, or their second home buyers, but you know, especially when you look at the, you know, rate of growth in the Florida MSAs and the migration, you know, the great, the great migration that we've seen. We've had migration for decades now from high cost states to low cost states, but you know, there's been no question a, a complacency about it and the sustainability of it. But the local buyers have been shut out and affordability has made it almost virtually impossible for them to live, especially in resort areas. And, you know, you hear stories of restaurants that are, you know, only um, allowing, you know, availability in certain hours or portions of the restaurants are, are not even open or even closed altogether. And it's just they don't have the staff. And a lot of it is they can't get the local um, labor because they have nowhere to live or they're living in their car or they're, you know, commuting. And so I think that's, that's a crisis that we have. And today's buyers... You know, I was talking to a builder in San Antonio and he's like, you know, there's no one that could afford the homes here. The local buyers, you know, are just without them and without the, you know, residents that, you know, typically would drive a market. You don't and you now have the exit doors being flooded with the non-primary. Uh, we've got directionally supply rising and demand just just plummeting in many of these markets. So pricing is headed lower in, in some markets. It could be a substantial correction nationally. We're looking for home prices, you know, to decline sort of 4% in 2023 and, and I think 3% in 24 for new home and 4 and 5% for existing. And I think that just to give you a national perspective, you know, that doesn't seem very much. But when you go into more of the regional markets, I think you're going to see that your double digit declines are going to happen and they're going to probably be more severe than even we're thinking just because of the rate of change and the amount of supply that's entering the market 
and people are running for the exits and, you know, they've made a tremendous amount of money. And, and that's always, you know, when you compare to the GFC and you think about where we are with risk associated with, you know, overall impairments and, and the kind of downturn experience, people have made, you know, $5 trillion in, in home, um, home equity appreciation. But we did have that in, in the last downturn too. We just didn't have any skin in the game like we do today. And, you know, that might be a bit of a buffer, but I don't think it mitigates the price pressure we're going to feel. Wow. Hey, hey George, can yeah. I go? Yeah. Oh, it is. Yep. Thanks. Hi, hi, Ivy. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I had two questions. I, I run spaces in the evening uh, when George is sleeping. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And, um, you know, we have a gentleman, it's two questions. We have a gentleman by the name of Logan Motoshami, who's out in Irvine, California. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. He seems to be fairly well published and, you know, West Coast, obviously. But Mm -hmm. um, he he keeps going on and on and on about how uh, the housing market is savagely unhealthy and this and that. And his sort of God particle for it getting back to normal um, is is the number of listings. And he's saying that until we get to a range of about 1.7 million to 1.9 million available homes in the MLS listed, listed you know, we're going to have this sort of imbalance in the marketplace. Um, I have one other question. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that analysis. Well, I think that right now we look at inventories, you know, which, you know, in a ratio, and I think George has a slide, which I think that the market is utilizing as sort of a, a great buffer to not be concerned about the the risks associated with price pressure because inventories are at record lows. And we look at inventories, new and existing single family inventories as a percent of households. And that is currently, at least in the last uh, quarter, first quarter data, still showing pretty much at record lows, but the increasing inventory levels that we predict by the end of this year would put us slightly below what would be historically a trend line. So currently, you know, we're running, um, you know, at call it um, point, 0.6% of households or something like, like that was March, but let's just say that we're, you know, historically a 2% number, And, or, you know, we think that number by the end of the year could be closer to like 1.6 to 1.7 as a percent of households and 2% historically has been trend line, but it's not about the, the, the absolute level of inventory. It's the rate of change and where is demand. So we look at velocity and velocity is sharply under pressure and velocity historically and defining that for the listeners, how we define it is at the end of any month how many homes are available for sale, and then in the subsequent 30 days, how much of that inventory is sold. And historically, that's run about 20 plus percent velocity. We got, in in this cycle, our velocity hit almost 60%. So there was so much demand that it that everyone was focused, well, there's no inventory, but we, what, we tripled the velocity from historical levels. And you know that in itself, is where we should be focused because it's not just where inventories are going to your friend's analysis who I don't know. It's what is demand doing. 
So you got to shift the narrative. And when you look at the new listings that were entering the market during COVID, pre-COVID, we've been in an upward trajectory all throughout, you know, basically first quarter of 13, it's just been an upward trend. And that pretty much continued during, you know, the last two years with the exception of the shutdown in 2Q of 20. So inventories have been rising, but that demand surge was so exponentially overwhelming that that's what took inventories lower. So that we've got to flip the narrative. The media is now going to focus on demand and not supply because they're going to see that the supply is changing so rapidly because demand is weakening so rapidly. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know if you can see it, but for everyone um, in the room, if you yeah. look up at the nest up at the top, uh, I've put your slide 26 from your deck, inventories or percentage of households. is what you were talking about. Uh, it's down to what was it? Uh, I know it's the like, days a little like bit. Point, it's it's hard to read. It's it's, yeah. it's under one percent. It's under one percent. Average looks like it's it's two plus or something like that. Yeah. So that's mm -hmm. what you're talking about. Okay, right. that's great. Okay, so um, Dude, let's. Uh, Ace is George, can I just have one more question? Real yeah, quick? yeah, 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 sure. But I want to go to okay. Michael, who's a builder. So yeah, my, my, you want to go to Michael first? No, no, get, no, get, no. Get okay. your question, and then we're gonna okay. Go, go ahead. Okay, thank you. So Ivy, one last question. So. So in my evening spaces, um, I've had a number of mortgage servicers who have come in who, you know, have what sounds like material numbers of mortgages, hundreds of thousands of mortgages that they service, business owners. And what they're saying to me is, is that they have a, over 10% of the mortgages that they service are in delinquents, delinquencies. But anybody who uses the C word gets put in some kind of a program or something like that. Do you think there could be significant amounts of shadow inventory um, coming available as some of these moratoriums and programs in these different states and so on and so forth for folks who have been uh, negatively impacted by COVID? You know, I, I think that our view is that if we're going to have to George's opening comment point about people have to lose their jobs to, you know, mitigate inflation or, or reduce inflation. I definitely think we're going to have people that are in distress, especially those that are FHA VA buyers, more FHA that are putting only down three and a half percent and, you know, are out of the box unless you get home price inflation. Anyone who purchased really anytime from call at the end of 21 to now, is probably if they're FHA, they're underwater just because the transaction costs, to, you know, to complete a, a, a sale. So you're going to see people lose their jobs or going to lose their homes. Now the magnitude of that, you know, with forbearance still prevalent and people that are still struggling, you know, really hasn't normalized completely yet. I think the number of people that were still in forbearance was, you know, peaked at over four million and now we're under a million. So you know that coupled with eviction filings are so well below normal. And we, we look at the eviction filings and we're like, you know, holy shit, if this thing normalizes, excuse the language, you're going you're gonna to see a lot of people that are going to lose, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be evicted. And then you've got landlords that have empty houses. And where are all the bodies going to come from? Because there's a tremendous amount of pre upward pressure that we anticipate that will push vacancies higher in the face of a backlog, at least, you know, that's at, you know, the highest that we've seen in decades when you combine multifamily and single family. And I think there's a lot of complacency about the rental market because people are like, well, people can't afford it. So they're just going to, they're just going to rent. 
and whether it's going to rent a single family home or they're going to, you know, rent a multifamily unit. And in reality, a lot of people that are sellers, because we asked like in Phoenix, who are the people that are selling right now? And we had a broker on who's more um, focused, his niche is more on the um, more fluent buyers and fluent sellers. And they said, well, a lot of them are selling and they're going to go rent because they want to monetize and they don't want to carry the house anymore. And so there's this, you know, perception that we're going to be okay because, you know, people are just the rental market's going to be fine. But our view is that you've got, you know, backlog and pressure uh, brewing because landlords are part of who are listening to sell right now. You know, the people that speculate and own 15 houses or the institutional investors that, you know, are, are at a stampede for the exit doors. I, I think we're going to see a lot more pressure. And that's not even including the risk of a recession and and job loss destruction. So I think it's going to get worse. And people are not really thinking about that when they're looking at, you know, where do like I had a builder call me yesterday from Sacramento says, when is this going to end? Like, how long are we going to, you know, be dealing with this? And, and I think that, you know, anything that goes up in the euphoric straight line that housing went up is not sustainable. And, you know, they're feeling a lot of the industry executives is like, well, we're kind of back at 19 levels. So it's not so bad, you know, where we were in terms of volume. You know, we're just seeing volumes return to more normalized levels where we were pre-COVID. But, you know, are you stopping the clock right now? Because things are not stopping. And I think that people are really looking at, you know, where the demand will come from. We believe that housing is more balanced if you exclude what's coming in backlog with respect to household, you know, the normalized level of supply that's really consists of household, incremental household growth, plus the need for demolition, replacements of demolition, and then sort of a normalized excess inventory. We think we're more in balance and the market thinks there's this massive deficit that we just don't believe exists based on our demographic work. So we think there's going to be a problem, not just in single family and possibly, you know, distressed sellers where you again on the margin of coming again from that first time buyer predominantly, but also from landlords that are going to lose bodies because people are going to be evicted and it's going to be hard because the rents that they're charging are exuberant right now. They got really egregious with rent increases. <laughs> It's like the more you drill down, the further you go down the rabbit hole. It's like the more I'm kind of like, oh no. I mean, I kind of came in with a negative bias before listening to you talk. You're just making it Take worse. Take a look at slide 59, George. Right, I'll, you want to share this one? Yeah, I'll, I'll be sure to put that up. All right. While I'm trying to fish for that, I want to turn to Michael. Uh, Michael is a friend of the room. Michael, I've not revealed to the audience. Uh, some of the communications uh, that you've sent me, I know you're in the federal witness protection program. So Michael, uh, I don't know how much you want to talk about what you do, who you are, where you are, but welcome, Michael, uh, your, your wealth of information. So please unmute yourself, Michael, the floor is yours. Hey George. Thanks. Um, well, what Ivy just said was pretty much everything that we are seeing in the Boise area. Um, and, we're, and we're not a builder. We're just a general contractor uh, and we are one of those speculators that uh, flip houses and we do client remodels. Um, and we're seeing it move pretty quickly here. Uh, that's not necessarily being reflected in like the actual uh, average price of homes sold. But currently, you know, about 30% of all the inventory is getting price cuts. And that is ranging anywhere from 
you know, two to about 10%. And if they're trying to move that inventory, it's uh, closer to about around 15%. Uh, and then Ivy, thanks for everything you have uh, provided to the space. It's kind of blowing my mind, to be honest with you. Uh, it's, it's quite a bit worse than what I was thinking. Well, well, Michael, given you're, you know, obviously in the thick of it, I like to refer to you as boots on the ground. You know, I think Boise's home price appreciation over, you know, two-year period was up north more than 70%. And, you know, what, you know, you've seen is a tremendous amount of influx of your um, people from California and Washington State and, you know, pretty much the arbitrage that, that was existed you know, kind mm -hmm. of got arbitraged away. But when I talk to local builders in Boise, what I hear is that a lot of people are being told they have to come back to work. You know, they're, they're now being asked to return and be at work three days a week. So people that have relocated or thought they had the flexibility, maybe some of it's also being driven in terms of why remote work, which I know George, we wanted to talk to, but it's also the, the, the flippers and, in Boise where you've made that much money and people are now like, holy shit, the market's peaked. I want out. Um, the builders are having to move inventory. And the worst thing is, you know, builders can do is actually cut price. because then it affects the backlog. And then you spook your backlog if they see these ads. And I just remember looking at um, an ad for Pulte that I think might've been, I, I don't remember which Southwestern market it was in. It wasn't Phoenix. It might've been um, in Dallas. They cut price literally slash through the price on and we track all of their websites for get Google alerts, watching every incentive that, that they have published or on their website. And it was a 7% cut in price. So you, you think if you're a consumer, you signed a contract and you're watching their website, you're like, what? They're getting a better price than I did. Right. I don't want this house anymore. And you know, depending on when you, when you bought it, you might have a lot of embedded equity. And our, my analyst, see my senior analyst been with me 17 years, you know, he's like, I think a lot of people will, we won't see can surge as much as maybe we've seen in the past because of the embedded equity. But when you think about the last six months, none of those people are, are sitting on a tremendous amount of equity. So there is a view that this will diminish because those that are still up massively are going to continue to hold, you know, their contracts and, and wait for their homes to be completed but I think that we've got some dynamics again with remote work, the changing an environment of remote work might also be a, a factor in how this plays out. Yeah, I totally agree. And what we're seeing as well is builders actually uh, giving closing contributions to buy down rates, which is probably suppressing the actual reported uh, sales value. Right, and they do that all the time. Well. The, yeah. the lenders right now, I mean, Lennar is offering right now, if you close by... X date and get a 4.56% 30-year fixed rate. And right. I mean, that, that if that doesn't stimulate, you know, demand, you know, to me, you know, when people say, you know, when you call the bottom, you know, and we called the bottom in 2012, it was not one factor because affordability at that, even 2009, 10, 11 was close to record levels of affordability. But the consumer was still fearful as home prices were declining. Right. And so when the consumer now thinks home prices have peaked, it's like this massive container, you know, ship, you know, oceanic container that freight. Once it changes direction, then you just have the sentiment shift. Like you haven't gone to a cocktail party or a barbecue or hung out with 
people and, and friends and people, I'm buying a home, I'm moving, you know, that changes. Now all of a sudden I'm a seller, I'm getting out. And I think so much of this is going to be magnified by the sentiment that consumers are, are really the last asset. Let me get, let me monetize before this economy rolls over and you're watching the wealth, wealth destruction, the stock market, the crypto market. And, you know, Reddy's still the prettiest girl to dance or the tallest midget. And so the people, I need, to, I need to get my money out. I want my money back. And so I think you're seeing that. And it could be, again, primary sellers that are going to a rental unit. And that might help the rental market in the short term. I do think it will help the single family rental market relative to otherwise what demand would have been. But, you know, to me, when you think about homeowners in the United States, thanks to terrible policy by the Fed, keeping rates at, you know, record lows for long, as long as they did and being accommodating, we now have the backlash in the mortgage industry of so much, um, so many homeowners that actually are locked in below 5%, over 90% of today's homeowners of the mortgage are locked in below, below five and almost half are locked in below three and a half. So you just think about mm-hmm. primary sellers they're they're not likely to be the 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 demand destruction won't be coming from them as much as it those that have to sell you know the three d's right death death divorce default but then you also have i don't have a d for speculators but you know it's the discretionary sellers that i think are really going to be the driving force of the market that's great ivy hey michael uh, michael let me ask you a question um not, I'm not putting you on the spot asking about yourself, but when you look at other builders, flippers in the market where you are in Boise, um, and you're talking about you know the intensification of price cuts, usually what happens this time point in the cycle, you get some people get caught, you know they're long whatever, and they get caught and they get flushed down the toilet. Um, do you sense an increasing amount of stress amongst some of the less well capitalized builders in the Boise market? Yeah, I mean, everyone sentiment has definitely changed uh, with builders, developers, residential owners. Um, kind of to Ivy's point, we all knew it was crazy. It's, you know, it's not like we thought property value should be going up 200% over a couple year period. But now with the current macro environment, you know, people are are definitely getting more scared. Uh, the question is how leveraged were those buyers? Because, you know, they're coming in buying these plots of land uh, quite quite a bit of ways from the actual city of Boise, you know, from anywhere between, you know, a couple million dollars and up to $25 million to develop, you know, subs that would have 500 homes in it. And we're talking about these cities that growing up I would never go to because uh, it, it, it was just farmland. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how they actually get caught holding that land or uh, in the early phases of that, those developments. You know, Michael, it's interesting because we, we have a land development survey that we do quarterly that we're tracking you know, north of 15 billion of, of assets through these land developers. And, you know, one of the things that we've been very concerned about and people have been more complacent about is the lot inflation. So when you look at mm-hmm. overall land inflation pre-COVID, um, and I and I have a chart that that 
shows the surge, like all of our charts, chart busters, you know, where you're seeing the accumulation, not only of lots that the public's own on balance sheet and the surge there, but the level of inflation, you know, just one Q over one Q 22 was still up 28%. And when I hear, you know, builders appetite for land is now diminishing and they might be pulling back, but others are still in the market and they're looking at underwriting, you know, to try to now underwrite to a 20% gross margin as opposed to the, you know, gross margins that are in the 30% range. And so what you hear for the spec builders, well, I have 30% gross margins. I got a lot of cush. I can, I can reduce, you know, um, overall pricing net, you know, using incentive financial type uh, buy downs or closing costs and, you know, backdoor incentives. And I could still, you know, maybe my margins will go down to 25, but I'm still, you know, got a lot of room to go. And our view is that they're, assuming sort of right now the market stays the way it is, but all the land mm-hmm. that they have acquired and a lot of that through options, those that are, especially the publics that have tried to do off balance sheet, you know, we think there'll be a lot of option abandonments, but the publics are in good shape, at least the nationals are 50% of the market because their balance sheets are in the best shape they've ever been in. But there's no question, especially some of the, the new entrants that have never gone through a home building cycle that paid up for these land, those land developers you know, would talk to us and be like 40% of the surge in land prices, which are probably up, you know, 50, 60% on a two-year basis in markets. Some markets double up more than 100%, especially out west in terms of those southwestern markets and Arizona and, you know, Idaho. It You, you would know better than me there. But they're just kind of like, well, you know, I've got a lot of equity in my land, so I'm not really worried about it. And, we don't know how they're financed if they're private. And, you know, a lot of times the privates are a little bit more conservative at times, the ones that are decent sized, but there's a lot of new, new, new entrants to the market that we don't know that they really understand and, and appreciate, you know, the cyclical risk. And they were the ones paying up 40% of the land surge came from non-production home building um, purchasers. So the build for rent operators were predominantly Whoa. the, <laughs> and that and, 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 and the build for rent market, we've been, you know, for us that are old enough to remember the movie, the, the uh, all the uh, president or the um, now I'm saying uh, the presidents with Nixon, uh, the um, all the president's men. Yeah, what's called yep. I, I, my, my title might be Roth, but you know, we've been following the money and tracking through the last few years, every um, public announcement for build for rent and where their communities are opened, if they disclose it, where the markets they're in. And, you know, it may not sound like a big number, but that number is tracking now, and it's predominantly unlevered, 95 billion, but only about 25% of it has actually been deployed. And I think that where it gets more risky is that their built for rent product, in many cases, is a homogeneous product to the for sale product in a new home development. And included like, you know, all of the bells and whistles that a new home might have, maybe some of it's stripped down depending on the builder, but like Lennar, for example, will sell the same exact house or will rent out the same exact house that they will, that, they, that they're selling. The monthly payment is higher in most cases on a per square foot basis for the rental than it is for the for sale product. And they're concentrated. We created an index, a GDI, we call it a geodynamic uh, index that looks at 
micro markets, thousands of zip codes of where there's available product for sale communities and for lease. And when you look at where the concentration of built for rent is, no surprise, smile states, biggest one being Phoenix, 20% of all built for rent starts are in Phoenix, got the Texas market, the Carolinas, and they have to go drive to the tertiary markets to buy land so they can pencil it, both production builders and built for rent operators. But over half of what's available through lease or for sale is on a hundred on our GDI index is New York City. And we're looking at, you know, densely populated market, zero, I joke where the cows don't want to even live. And you're out in the third ring of the market, tertiary market. And that over 50% of what's being offered is below 10 on our index in both rental and in for sale. So not only is it concentrated in the smile states and, you know, in many of these boom bust markets that have had the, the biggest cyclical, you know, surges and, 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 and troughs, but they're now concentrated in those out exurb markets. And so it, it really is, we question where are these bodies going to come from, especially as you go closer in and there might be more opportunities as you see pressure closer to job centers. And, and everyone didn't care because they're going to build where the cows don't want to live because guess what? People can work anywhere. Oh, well, wait a minute. Gas prices are up a lot. Well, it doesn't matter. You know, I think it's, you know, even the contractors don't mind being, they, they're the contractors and all the construction industry. They'd rather be in those tertiary markets because that's where they're working and that's where they live. And so I, I just think that's a recipe of, of real risk for the amount of homes that might be sitting empty. I'm not suggesting ghost towns like we saw, you know, in many of the inland markets in California and Arizona, but we're, we're going to have a lot more supply getting delivered that's speculative. All the bill for rent is 100% speculative, but then you get the for sale speculation. It's just going to be very difficult to absorb all of that when affordability is so stretched. And, you know, the optimism, and George, I want everyone in the space to weigh in, is, well, rates are going to come down and housing is going to be the winner. Consumers' right. demand is going to surge again because, you know, the yield curves and everyone's convinced that you buy the long end of the curve right now because there's going to be pressure and housing, therefore, is, you know, I had clients emailing me yesterday, time to buy the builders. And I'm like, nope. Got it. So, Ivy, that, that, that's fantastic. Let's, uh, let's just uh, reset the remainder for a second. So, we're speaking with Ivy Zellman of Zellman Associates. Uh, she's the number one housing analyst in the country. And um, I don't know. The more she talks, the more depressed I become, as if that's a possible thing. At any rate, um, we've got a great room here going. Sorry, George. <laughs> um, so uh, we had Jackson and then Michael, um, three aces. So we've got a couple of really great cookies, smart cookies uh, up next. So Ivy, um, we're gonna have we're gonna have Abe, and then we're gonna have Kevin. So Abe is um, in Toronto. Abe, one of the few markets that's crazier in the U.S. Abe, just want, just a, a warning up front. Ivy doesn't really follow the Canadian market, so it'd be great if, if you want to compare and contrast what's going on. But don't she's Canada's be is not she doesn't follow it accurately. So. Abe, uh, Abe's one of the sharpest guys in the room. So, Abe, good to see you. The floor is yours. Uh, thanks very much, uh, George um, and uh, Aces and Ivy. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to you um, uh, today. Um, Thank you. Uh, I, I, uh, I'm an old uh, sort of veteran. Um, I, just a, a 
provide some context. Um, I, I spent um, uh, part of my career in structured finance and securitization in 08. So I saw the whole thing implode, uh, implode right, right before my eyes. So I've got some context in terms of what happened in 08, both in Canada and the U.S. Um, and um, sort of fast forward to uh, 2022, um, I do have a question for you that is more U.S. centric. Uh, but here's a comment in terms of um, um, what's happening north of the border. Um, so um, I reside in Toronto. Much of what you said in terms of, uh, and again, I'll paraphrase, um, uh, not wanting to go where the cows, uh, not even the cows want to go. I'll give you a little bit of uh, some, some real, real stats uh, surrounding the Toronto um, uh, city. And by the way, Toronto, if you think things are insane in the U.S., you haven't seen anything. You have to come to mm-hmm. Toronto a level of insanity that's probably five standard deviations from the mean. Um, We have seen, I'll give you an example, uh, peak was February 2022. Um, We have seen um, um, uh, jurisdictions around Toronto, 40 minutes around Toronto, uh, take a half a million dollar uh, bloodbath. Um, So I'll give you an example, Uh, median detached sales in Oshawa, which basically, no offense to people who live in Oshawa, but is not exactly, um, you know, where I'd want to live. Uh, They're down 33%. Um, uh, Another location, uh, which is Whitby, which is, again, about 20 minutes, that's down $500,000. The downtown condos in Toronto, about the only thing that's bidding um, uh, at the moment, but they're completely insane as well, where you're looking at um, um, sale price of anywhere between $1,600 and $2,000 per square foot. Um, The other thing I'll mention is that... um, um, you mentioned something that's really, really interesting and something I've been uh, talking about forever, and it's just been ignored. Um, in this, in Canada, and I think much of what you guys are, are going to see now in the States, is that we've had a demand problem. We do not have a supply problem. We have three, 332,000 housing starts per year. But the problem is that the financialization of the asset class has become so uh, entrenched that we have a massive demand problem. We also have immigration policy that's been used as a tool in order to keep um, uh, pricing and keep a floor on pricing. And actually that will be my question for you um, in in about a second or so. Um, So what we're seeing here um, in Canada is essentially um, a a situation where we have um, an asset class that is dominant, which is basically housing. Um, and um, we're now seeing um, uh, large developers, condo developers that are shelving projects uh, one after the other. Uh, within two weeks, we've had 5,000 condos that have basically been shelved. Um, I have access to about uh, two of the largest builders um, on a personal level. Um, they're essentially shelving deals, um, putting them on ice. Uh, the level of inflationary inputs to, um, to construction are absolutely obscene. Uh, can't find people, um, skills gaps. Um, and uh, now we have the, um, the pressure um, with regards to, um, um, you know, uh, we've had the Bank of Canada raise uh, their rates 100 uh, basis points, which has been the most in 24 years. So it's a bit of a shock to the system. Um, another thing that um, uh, came up, I think Three Aces asked me this, 53% of the total um, mortgages that are outstanding uh, are variable rate mortgages uh, at the moment. Um, our uh, longest term typically 10 five years you can go to a seven but seven years are very cost prohibitive um, so we do not have 30-year mortgages in this country they're basically five years and they're variables and 53 percent are variable uh, floating so good luck to them um, 
And uh, the only thing that's kept um, the story alive in Canada, and this is your question now, it's going to be coming, is um, we have seen the influx of uh, foreign buyers uh, en masse that has been so unprecedented that they have essentially moved the needle in terms of both on the supply side, uh, but also keeping a floor on price. And um, um, it, it will be questionable as to whether or not that will that shall continue. And the question that I have for you, which is more US centric is, what are you seeing, if any, um, uh, foreign capital uh, inflows into uh, major cities, major U.S. cities that have more of an international, uh, um, you know, flavor. Like, for example, New York uh, could be Los Angeles, it could be uh, Boston, etc. Um, are you seeing um, um, uh, demand being crimped, and uh, how do you measure the um, uh, foreign flows that actually end up in uh, in in these uh, jurisdictions from a real from a foreign a buyer perspective. Thank you so much. It's been great. Well, no, thank you. It's really um, interesting to hear about the Canadian market. I actually analyzed the Canadian market probably seven years ago when Taylor Morrison was a developer builder there and learned a little bit about uh, the greater Toronto area and the limitations there. And really the diff predominant difference was the you know, lack of a 30 year fixed mortgage. And, you know, people would really um, um, hold that as the big differentiator and but taylor morrison sold their operations because they didn't want canadian exposure because the u.s investors didn't like them having having presence there but, but but when you think about foreign investors the best way for us to track that um, is through our real estate broker survey so we're surveying um independent broker owners that are franchise owners that in aggregate um sample size is north of 10 percent of existing home sales so every month we ask them where foreign demand is and we do it on a zero to 100 scale. And the numbers have remained very low um, relative to any historical perspective. Cause we had a influx of foreign buyers that drove, you know, New York city prices back, uh, back in early part of the recovery in 2014, New York real estate prices peaked for 4 million plus um, as we saw a lot of those foreign buyers, um, exit the market um, and New York is probably still below the 14th peak right now in New York City. We've not seen the influx yet. There's a little bit on the margin, but very little that's um, offsetting the domestic activity that we're seeing. But it's what we, we try tracking it through the broker survey and there's public record data and the NAR puts out numbers, but very lagging and really not anything real time as much as I think our broker survey reflects. Great. Thank you so much. I just observe also with the dollar being so strong. Right. Uh, it's not that I don't think, you know, foreigners going to have an appetite for buying for that number going up anytime soon. So, okay, Let, let's move on. We got a couple other. I wanted to bring up, George, Sorry. if I could, Go ahead. I wanted to Go make ahead. sure I mentioned it because, um, you know, thinking about the cost and inflation and materials and labor and all the inputs and development costs, roads and pipes, you know, it's, it's so inflationary that, you know, a lot of deals just don't pencil now and chatting with some of the largest um, developers slash institutional owners, the backlog that we cite for multifamily as just to give you an example in condo and high rise or just suburban, you know, podium, that their view is that, you know, a lot of the backlog that today is at the highest levels since the early 70s and hitting and backlog for us 
they've broken ground. They've started the project as opposed to just pulling permits. And what we've heard from industry executives that were aggregating almost 2 million units monthly that we're, we're assessing what they're seeing, including development, they're basically, once, once they've broken ground, they're moving forward, they're going to monetize. So you mentioned deals getting shelved. I, I think that is typically, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, is if, it, if they haven't broken ground yet. But we believe that 23 and 24, we will still see that backlog getting delivered in multifamily that will pressure lease rates. And, and many are more um, complacent about it because they don't think they'll think those you know, number of units and backlog will get canceled. And on the multifamily side, we are seeing starts plummet meaning new incremental permits being pulled and, and starts. And that, that's where the disconnect comes from because there's complacency around backlog, assuming that backlog is now going to be shelved. And, and over 90% of our industry contacts said, no, once we've started the project, we're going to finish it. So I don't know if that's the same in Canada or not. Yeah, so, so just for, as a point of clarity, um, we are actually seeing uh, projects actually being uh, canceled. They're just... Uh, altogether, essentially saying we're not we're not going to go through with it during the permitting process, um, and they're uh, looking at a at a later date. The other issue that they're having here is um, that prices have plummeted, and as a consequence, they can't make the the numbers work. And as right. uh, essentially saying there's no juice here, so so we're out. Um, you know, it could be indefinitely, but but you know, for, for the, at least for the foreseeable future, because the whole condo development is, you know, as you know, it's, it's, you know, it's several years, it's two years just to get approvals here in Toronto uh, before you can even stick a, a shovel in the ground. And then you've got a couple of more years. So um, we're seeing that and repricing is actually is what's happening. Uh, the problem is there's no takers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's like, Oh, you know, uh, we're not going to shelve, um, but we still want this, but the market is saying something else. And so as a consequence, uh, they're being forced to shelf. Well, we have our transaction and operating survey for the multifamily industry and, you know, cap rates are expanding, but we're in price discovery mode. Like there's, you know, for every project that's put out there where there were, you know, 20 bidders, there's like crickets now. And so the market doesn't even, hasn't even figured out um, from a transaction transaction perspective, how much weakness there is, but you're absolutely correct. And deals are not penciling. And once they've been permitted, but if they've, the shovel has been in the ground, they're going to move forward. And yeah, that's the, where the risk comes from. Yeah. The same thing here. They are, they, they have to go forward. There's no question. Yeah. They've been financed. So they are moving forward. This is a question that's going to happen. What are the, the returns going to look like? That's exactly. the problem. Mm-hmm. Right. Th- thanks for that, Abe. Abe, stay there. Cause I'm sure there'll be more questions. So you can thanks, wait. Abe. So let, let, let's move on. I want to go to Kevin and then Peter. They've been waiting patiently. Kevin, uh, welcome. Please unmute yourself. And then Peter, you're on deck. Hey, thanks so much. Great to be here. And uh, thanks for all you do, Ivy. I've, I've been following Ivy Thank for you. 20 years in the industry. And um, she's a, she's always been a hero of mine because she tells the truth, no matter how Thank you. Uh, unpopular that may be. <laughs> um, for, first thing, I, I just be, always be careful what you wish for. The Fed wished for inflation forever they got it and now i hope they're they're truly wanting to to take advantage of that and and now a lot of people keep talking about uh that will you know go away from a savagely unhealthy uh housing market to a healthy one when we get the inventory and i think it's somewhat similar and that be really careful what you wish for because those of us went through the gfc in this industry know that uh supply and demand always has those two parts to it 
and uh, one doesn't solve the other on its own. Um, you know, Ivy, I just wanted to say a quick example of a builder we work with in Austin, Texas, who uh, in June, they have 300 homes under construction, all past uh, framing. Three, offered 3.875 interest rates, offered up to $170,000 off the price of a home, 5% uh, bonus to buyer's agents. Uh, basically anything that a salesperson selling new homes would ask for to overcome objections. Uh, at the end of that, then, then they spend an extra hundred grand telling their marketplace, radio, television, billboards about this fantastic offering that they have. And uh, out of those 300 homes under construction, they sold a net of 15. And what time, what was, I'm just sorry to interrupt, but can you give us a time frame? Because that 3.75 that you said they're offering, that, that's a pretty big buy down. And yeah. depending, so pretty shocked to hear that they had that locked up. But yeah, so that that's for the for the homes under construction. Uh, that was that was June first of of you know last month, and so they, they kitchen sinked it on everything except for um, uh, base price on new homes because it's just focused on the inventory. But they they kitchen sinked it in June, which June and July typically for home builders are two of the worst months anyway when we have normal cyclicality, and then the Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index is so poor that. Um, the consumers just are not responding. And, and we work with, for, for everyone else who doesn't know, we work with 65 different home building organizations around the U.S. There is no incentive that has meaningfully created sales uh, absorption increases. It's been incremental at best. And so that's what I think is, is most interesting is, you know, rates popped up and everyone said that's what caused the affordability issue. My, my sense is still that the price increases if you could if you could afford a house in March of 2022, you could probably still make the payment with adjustable rate mortgages. You're just choosing not to, because there's no visibility uh, about the future. And so I just think it's interesting. Uh, builders who have, have have done any incentive, it's only been incremental. Where, you know, they, they feel they feel like they've been able to sell more homes than they would have without the promotion. But it's not anything that's making them feel confident about the future. Um, yeah, that's, that's not surprising. And it was Peter, is that correct? Kevin. Kevin, sorry, Kevin, sorry. So okay. the interesting thing is that it works in certain markets and it's not working in others. And that that's where, you know, you're seeing the incentives maybe stimulate demand, but it's still off with respect to normal seasonality. We're definitely seeing weaker demand, but you're seeing some of the activity, especially in the Southeast, actually work. Like I was surprised on the optimism and what I was hearing in the metrics. So I think Austin and Phoenix and Boise are examples of, of where markets are really turning and it doesn't matter. Sentiment's negative and it doesn't matter. hundred percent. And I think a lot so of totally the... inelastic and you're not going to see that, that, you know, container ship direction again, and it's going to just get worse. Um, but when you're looking at certain markets, I don't think it's going to last, but right now they are seeing incentives driving, you know, incremental demand, but absorptions, which is the lingo we use, how many sales per community the builder selling, you know, just to give you some numbers, if you're selling one a month, it, or sorry, one a week for a month, that that's a, a level of absorption, you're getting price appreciation. And so absorptions peaked 
and actually exceeded the great financial boom period on a per community mm-hmm. basis. They then had to limit sales. And through our survey, at one point, the several hundred builders were aggregating about 60% were limiting sales in the communities they were offering because they couldn't catch up with all the supply constraints and just the whack-a-mole of getting the homes completed. So they started limiting sales. Now that's fallen to 20% from almost peaking at 60 and the 20% that are still limiting, it's not from demand. It's because they can't keep up. Their backlog is still problematic. They're still trying to get these homes closed. But what we've also seen just thinking through, you know, all the metrics that we're aggregating is this just incredible amount of pressure from the builder's perspective on, you know, absorption. So the Western market numbers this Wednesday, yesterday, today's Thursday, did I say Wednesday? I don't even know. Thursday, Wednesday, yesterday, it was 0.4 a week for an aggregate for the three states that I mentioned that we do weekly, just to give you that perspective. So anything below one, you're typically a week, you're not, you're not going to see pricing power. But when you see numbers like 0.25, 0.4, we've seen MSAs at those levels on a per-weekly basis rising cans. These builders are, are, are seeing levels that we saw in the GFC in some cases or right in the heart of COVID when we shut down. So it's, it's not going to last in the markets where we're seeing demand getting somewhat stimulated through incentives. But it's a, just a, a pretty remarkable difference by, by market that we need to make sure we we're, you know, at least providing you guys insight too. So it's not the same everywhere. Austin and Phoenix are the first to turn and it'll be, the magnitude is going to vary, but it'll be interesting to watch how severe the Southeast, if it is severe, um, but there's more optimism there. hundred percent. The, the builders that we work with in that, in that area who have resisted or pushed back against price increases in, in their supply chain at all, are still selling relatively well, but they generally don't even need to use real incentives or they're not advertising. It's just back pocket negotiation when the consumer comes mm-hmm. in. My, my question mm-hmm. for you though was, you know, the GFC as painful as it was at least gave builders an opportunity to reset land. And ultimately a lot of that fueled the growth and profitability for the next decade. Um, do you think this round of pain um, gives us anything different than, than what that round did? as an opportunity for future optimism once we go through it? Well, I think that a lot of the, um, and just the builders and and institutional investors believe that the magnitude of impairments and and equity destruction and the GFC, you know, builders wrote off 50% to 60% of their equity. And because, you know, they're the public builders are able to reset and basically have the benefit of now, you know, a lower cost basis, it did provide this, you know, window for their trajectory of growth and earnings. We, it, the options as a percent of total back in the, the boom period actually is the same number, 60% roughly. The difference though is the size of the projects and some of those options that we thought were true options were specific performance options where they had to move forward. And there's a lot oh. of land bank, a lot of land bankers right now that are, charging quite a bit for the builders um, and a flexibility of having land off balance sheet, you know, they would tell you that these builders are going to have to perform. So there could be, you know, again, depending on the magnitude, we could see a reset, but the builder's optimism is I have so much land that has seen a surge in appreciation, 
you know, as I mentioned with land prices up double in some cases or, or, you know, 50 plus percent, that all this new land that they've purchased is really where the risk is. So it's a lot of room before they're going to need to take substantial impairments. But we disagree with that. We think we're going to start to see probably about five, six percent of the equity is going to be written off. Um, so it's not going to be the same massive. I mean, in cycles prior to the GFC, that five, six percent is kind of in the range of other cycles, like in the, you know, 1991 cycle. And, and so that's our starting point, though. I mean, even during the great financial um you know, the GFC and when we were headed lower, we had like a 20% write-off that we were forecasting and it wound up being 50 to 60. So it, it the demand side and how, you know, is a recession going to be a technical recession? Are we going to have a severe recession? But I think that our starting point is that much more conservative impact to the land and to the equity values for the industry than we saw in the GFC as of today. Thanks. Th- thanks for that, Kevin. Really appreciate it. All right, let's move on to Peter. Great question, uh, Kevin. Thank you. Yeah, Peter. Um, floor is yours. Uh, welcome, Peter. What's up? Hey, what's going on? Sorry, I'll keep it brief. Um, just something that uh, just to get onto the incentive thing. Like I'm a realtor here in the Greater Toronto area, and the emails I've been getting from builders on like five percent deposits, two years free maintenance, all for for you know condo developments has been pretty nuts lately. They're even doing um, shuttle buses where they're taking realtors around to sites and shuttling people from spot to spot to even sell projects now. Uh, but the the one thing I wanted to mention as an anecdote was more for Abe, because uh, he said uh, his, his note on, or his point on in, um, immigration, trying to keep a floor on this. Uh, I have been doing in the last 30 to 60 days so many lease uh, listings, more than usual. And I can't tell you the, the amount of applicants we've been seeing. Uh, like, it, it's been madness. And price, rental prices are up probably 20% year over year. But the amount of applicants, I would say 70% of them per, like this is across the entire GTA area, that are uh, either just recently in the country or they're not even here yet and they're looking to lock down a place. It's been insane. Like, I've probably done a dozen of them in the last 30 days. Wow. And, and I would say more than 70% have, are just like not either, again, here for two to three months or haven't even shown up into the country. Uh, mostly, mostly from India, actually. And they're just being transferred here. That's, that's the predominant what I'm seeing. Uh, but, and, and, and even like families of three and four settling for, you know, one bedroom and dens and like smaller accommodations. So just a note on that. That's interesting. Now, maybe it's Canadians are a little bit more favorable on immigration than our 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 um, people, uh, the our politicians in Washington. Uh, I think so. Abe, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We have a quota on the number of Canadian questions. You, you Canadian guys are all over the place. The Canadian oil <laughs> guys, Canadian real estate guys. Enough. Come on. Enough. Um, seriously. All right, let's, let's, I have a couple more questions for you, and then we may tail off here. Um, we haven't really spoken in great detail. It's an obvious question, but share with us your framework for the way you think about work from home and the permanent impact that that's going to have on relative price across markets. So, Captain Obvious, check in. I know you're in the city. I live in Westchester. And you'll, you'll, you'll correct me, or I'm sure I'm going to misstate something. But I've observed that 
some of the headline numbers you see or the articles I see about what's happening in New York real estate is highly misleading. They'll say, oh, you know, New York's coming back. It's great, yada, yada. But there's like a shift going on there. People who, you know, an overpricing on the Upper East Side's got no bid. It collapses. So, you know, someone might trade up a little bit. When I look at the per square foot transaction prices, which I think is the right way to look at it, yeah, it's come off the bottom, but it, as you, I think you started to say, we said a little while ago, it's not back to where it was mm-hmm. a handful of years ago. So you compare and contrast that, and whether New York's down a little bit or a lot or flat with where it was is not the point. The point is it hasn't really been robust compared to, we just heard from our Boise friend in some of these other markets where, you know, Austin, everything's up and to the right, like, you know, multiple, it's at a different multiple standard deviations but where it was previously. So how do you think about with work from home, you know, it, it, it's reshaping the footprint where we ha- where we work, where we play, where we live, you know, where we vacation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you think about, um, to, you know, to the extent this is a permanent reshuffling of the deck, you know, if you could buy a synthetic and you may say, well, George, it would have been a good idea two or three years ago, but not now. You know, it, you know would you, for instance, if, if Goldman Sachs would issue us a derivative where we could be long Florida versus short short New York? Like, you think that's a good trade or, you know, and some people say, well, you know, Florida real estate's never going to go down. Well, they always say that because right. there's, you know, three, 300,000 people a year leaving New York, elderly people leaving New York to go to Florida. And you just look at the tens of billions of dollars of, you know, gross income that's walking out the door from New York every year going to Florida. So back in New York don't work. Quality of life is getting worse. Blah, 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 blah. You know, the whole story. So how do you think in New York is just probably at the, at the leading edge of all that's true across many cities across the country. So how do you think about that in terms of the way you when you try to pontificate or, or scenario build about what relative change in real estate prices is going to look like going forward in the years to come? You know, it's a great question. You know, if you just look at pre-COVID, the number of households that worked remotely, we were of the population between the ages of 20 and 64, something was six to 7%. And, you know, where that levels out, um, I've seen numbers where it's even back to those levels. In some articles, it's double those levels. I don't have a good read on, you know, real time what that is, because there's mixed, you know, policy from, you know, management teams where you can come in three days, it's hybrid. But I do think that it certainly has helped you know, the more affordable states and, and the arbitrage is massive or had been from New York to, to Florida or New Jersey or even the Midwest, you know, to states like Tennessee and Alabama. I mean, those markets have taken off. But what we look at, George, is really the rate of change going forward, the sustainability of that influx. And is it changing? Is it moderating? Have we sort of run out of gas on that? And while people think that we had the great American shuffle is a new thing because of COVID. We would say the great American shuffle has been going on for decades. And so we always ask builders, we'd hear management teams on commerce call say, you know, 40, 50% of our buyers are from out of state. And the right question to ask is, well, what was that prior to COVID? And when you ask them, and I don't think they have good data on it, they might say, well, it might've been 20 to 30%. And I have builders yesterday, uh, that a, bu- a builder I spoke to yesterday that told me 70% of his buyers are still coming from out of state, predominantly New York and California. And, you know, it's just a question of, again, the confidence level for people. It might be that they can have the ability to work anywhere and their, and their company and their employer who wants to retain them 
It's going to be flexible. You know, it's interesting because, you know, my chairman and CEO wants to know what, what is the Roe versus Wade, you know, uh, reversal mean for where people are going to want to live and work. And Wells Fargo cancels their move to Texas from their headquarters and, and San Francisco because of Roe versus Wade. And, and will, will that, you know, sort of impact, you know, the blue states more favorably people might want to stay and live and work in those markets. I know it's a lot of, you know, political sort of rational or irrational ways that you think about markets, how they might be impacted, but, you know, it's a new layer that we have to contemplate, especially it's, it's really about jobs. So if the jobs are moving to these more affordable markets, then you're going to probably see a continuation of, especially as, as they contemplate, you know, affordability. But I think that people are going to be spooked, George, right now, just because prices in Florida have surged so much that, you know, your, your price per square foot in Miami is not, you know, it's in parity with New York, on, on par with New York in some cases. So is the arbitrage still there? And do they feel confident buying at today's prices? I think you need a price correction in Florida. But would you, if you had to say over a five, 10 year period, would you rather be long Florida and short New York? I'd probably have to agree with that. Yeah, I mean, it was an obvious trade in the in, in the aftermath of uh, COVID, you know, go back to 2Q 2020. But it's, it may be, Florida may be sort of like, you know, a high multiple growth stock where it's already fully in the price. Uh, <laughs> right. Oh, I'm kind of with you. Uh, so we're just yeah. looking at the rate of change and just want to uh, yeah. appreciate that, you know, the influx to Texas when you've got 112 degrees and you can't use your AC at, at you know, full blast. I don't know how many of those now um, transplanted New Yorkers in Texas are going to want to stay in, in Texas under that or 100%. Just, or the fact that, you know, there's 100%. different, you know, state regulations that, that, that are impacting how people feel about staying in those states. So, I also think, you know, remote, remote work is, you know, in flux and, and whether or not the trend will um, continue to move back to coming back to the office. I think it's rather unhealthy for young people to not work in an office environment where, you know, you have people you collaborate with, you learn from and, and, and can be left behind. So I, I don't know where that's going and I'd be curious what you think. I, I, I you know, it's interesting. Um, your alma mater, a CS, um, James Sweeney, who was the uh, economist there for a number of years. He went to, uh, it was BlackRock recently. He asked a really interesting question. I remember one of the first panels uh, in the in the wake of the COVID, uh, first, first uh, disaster with COVID in 2Q of 2020. And he asked, he was heading a panel, and he asked the, each of the panelists the following questions. Very good question. What changes are people seeing that most think are permanent, but really will, will turn out to be temporary? And what changes in economic activity are people seeing that most believe are temporary, but will turn out to be permanent? Hmm. And if it was just COVID, I agree with you. I, I think, you know, especially people and also people in the creative creative industries, they need to aggregate. There is a network effect. You need a mentor, all that kind of stuff, a cooperative uh, effort. But if you're a lawyer or a portfolio manager and you can work from home and you're further advanced in your career, would you rather be sitting at the beach out in the Hamptons <laughs> uh, or, you know, in, in Midtown? 
and there's a quality of life issue there. And so if it was just COVID, I wouldn't think it's so permanent, but I think there's this technological change, which is, which has taken place. We didn't have zoom five years ago where it's more amenable lends itself to more decentralized workplace. And so I think, you know, for instance, take Maine. I'm sure Maine is not the same, the full, the hot, you're focused on Phoenix and Austin. Okay. I mean, Ivy, do you, I don't even know. You, you, I'm sure you have it because you're a housing nerd. I mean, you probably have, I just got to pick on Maine because like Maine's like totally asleep. Nothing ever happens there. But have you seen like what happened to Maine housing prices? Because people like, you know, they step out, out of their place in the Upper East Side. And it's like, go to Maine. You can buy like 10, at least you could have two years <laughs> ago, like 10 houses for the price of what you own. And people are like, hey, wait a second. I mean, I don't want to live in Maine because it's cold and there are mosquitoes and the waters, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, it, it, I'm exaggerating, but, but you get the point. I mean, if you don't, for, I mean, I'll, I'll give, you, give you another thing. I live in Westchester in one of the more expensive uh, zip codes. And um, my neighbor was former global strategist for a major bulge bracket firm, living on the Upper East Side. Um, my, my neighbor, I said, because this was kind of his little weekend getaway place. So he's living on the Upper East Side, it was primary residence. He'd come out here on the weekends because he's got three kids. It was a pool, you know, tennis courts, the whole deal. And I don't think he's pulled the trigger on it, but like if you're him, yeah, do you want to be stuck in a six or seven million dollar place in the Upper East Side where the quality of life for the kids sucks? There's no grass, there's no pool, there's no tennis courts. Or if you only have to be in the office a day a week or a day every two weeks, um, and you can instead hang out in Westport and schlep in and out in 45 minutes, it's like like it's not even a question. Of course you do that. Mm-hmm. So I just cut like I don't know where you live in the city. I'm not going to ask you, but I mean, if you go long short, look within the city. Go long, short, Upper East Side. Go, go short, Upper East Side, you know, long the village, you know. Or, I mean, it's just – and there's, there's – I have some friends in the room here. I'm not going to give this person's identity up. But I have first-hand knowledge of this. I mean, I don't know where you are in the city, but it's like some of this stuff is – I think it's permanently impaired. Um, well, you're not even talking about taxes yet and, and what, you know <laughs> – what the impact you know just from what new york's going to have to do in order to offset the exodus and and the revenues that they would typically be generating it it's 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 can be you know it's frightening when you know too much as we do you know and be be an owner of a what has been a second home for myself in new york and thinking about the same things all right i want to go on to another question but before we do that um i've been remiss um uh, we're, 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 mer- we're not going to keep you here all day, uh, Ivy. You're free to go whenever you want. But <laughs> maybe we'll do one or two more questions. Before we do that, um, if any of you are interested, um, Ivy, you know, is does prodigious work uh, on the housing market, knows this more than anybody, frankly. And there are a lot of really real estate interest, real estate the inclined folks in the room. If you're interested in learning more about what um, she does and maybe becoming a client, it's uh, their their website is zelmanassociates.com and a good friend of mine Pam uh, she's head of uh, sales and marketing for uh, Zelman Associates. If you email Pam at zelmanassociates.com, that's Pam at zelmanassociates.com. God, I hate the way I say it. Sounds like I'm gonna throw in a toast. <laughs> you know, call, collect, call, direct, but call now. again. That's Pam at zelmanassociates.com. Um, so in any event, um, seriously, if you want to know more about housing, um, you know. Ivy's, Ivy's the axe here. All right, so let's go to Emma. Um, Emma, good to see you. What's on your mind, Emma? I, I just heard um, Ivy mention, uh, I think it was 
New Yorkers from the Upper East Side moving to Texas, not able to run their AC full blast. I happen to be exactly one of them. Um, <laughs> Hi, Emma, by the way. Hi. Nice to hear a woman on, by the way, George. <laughs> he tries, he tries, he promotes us. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so we are able to run our AC the full blast. So you hear through the news reports or things on Bloomberg. They suggest you don't run your AC full blast, but I've got a large house and the AC is Sorry, people. I, I'm trying to be ESG, <laughs> but I'm running a full blast. It's, not out there. It, it's really nice because you get to have a pool, blah, blah, blah. But um, And I know it sounds like, George, you're, um, you're kind of really short the Upper East Side, but I miss the Upper East Side still. I mean, it's like, <laughs> and the remote work point, I, it's hard to run a cohesive team remotely, I find. Um, I don't know if anybody else wants to chime in about well, uh, Emma, 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 I would call the Upper East Side, I'm pulling your chain now, I'd call the Upper East Side a value trap, but that would imply it's a value. No, it's a melting <laughs> ice cube. It's a melting ice cube. <laughs> I love it there, though, man. Uh, <laughs> it's, I, it's, it's, I lived there for a decade, so that was my stomping ground. So uh, I'm, I'm not there now, but I can see why you love it, Emma. Yeah. Anyway. Emma, seriously, the Ivy's question. You think about the unit economics – and Ivy, Ivy, again, you know, Wayne Gretzky, go to where the puck is going, not where it is. But the unit economics, the taxes, the safety, you know, as the city's tax base, uh, you know, exits, it just gets, it, it's like, a, it's like a death spiral. And so, like, I, I, I just look at directionally the way things are headed. I mean, how do you, how do you respond to that? I mean, you're right, and that's exactly why I am the transplant that I am. I mean, I saw this happening and it going in this direction late last year. And I bought this property house uh, sight unseen, flew out, bought a car, put it in the garage, got the electricity set up, flew back <laughs> to New York, then came back out in July. So, I mean, in, sorry, in January. So um, I, for me, it's more like, a, I guess, an emotional thing. I miss it. Uh, it's a totally different lifestyle. Uh, but, but you're right. Well, Emma, to make you feel better and you may not miss it as much, it, it's really not safe to ride the subways now. It's gotten really scary. And there's plenty of homeless people that are now, I think, much more prevalent that I see. And it's kind of scary at times. You know, I was at an outdoor restaurant and there was some crazy homeless guy that was coming by and you, know, you hear a lot more of people getting robbed, sitting, eating outside. And so I think that, you know, a woman my age that you know, grew up on the Upper East Side, was there for a decade, it just doesn't feel as safe. And I think yeah. that is going to also weigh in. But I was with a colleague for dinner last night and I said, where, which train? Cause he's going to Brooklyn. He goes, Oh no, I'm not riding the train. I'm getting, I don't want to push, get pushed in. People are getting pushed in. And, I never, and, you know, it's yeah, I had a policy of, of like never riding the subway unless I absolutely <laughs> had to. So I would just run, but I would always have a taser literally in the front of my shorts. Like it was, visible to all um, I mean so I, actually got, I actually got punched by a male homeless guy in the face for uh, no literally no reason he came up straight into my face and said who gave you the right to be here um an African-American guy and I said excuse me who gave you the right to be here and he punches me I punch him we're like straight up in the middle of Union Square having oh a throw down I know and then, so this guy starts to follow me around and then I let him know about the taser I gave him a couple warnings and then one time I just had to it was like two in the morning no one's there it's union square 
I mean, he could have killed me if he wanted to. So I had to tase in the air, like toward his direction to get him scared, you know, and he ran away. But these are, I mean, I, it's, it's real for sure, because I, I mean, I had to deal with it myself. So I always recommend a taser, even the cops, like even though it's illegal, they won't, they don't care. All right, Emma. Well, Emma, first of all, Emma, we want to know why you were out two in the morning by yourself when you and that's another conversation. Well, like, well I had to go. <laughs> <laughs> He's a golden doodle. All I had right. to walk the golden doodle. All right, all right, all right. Let's hold there. Let's try to wrap this room up here because Ivy, you can go wherever you want. We got a couple more questions here. Let's get through them and then we're going to close the room. I want to do Kur. I'm not pronouncing his name correctly. K U R. Please keep it short, and then we'll do Invest Two, and then John Kur. Floor is yours. Please unmute yourself. Okay. Um, thirty-year mortgages are approaching levels that they haven't been in years. I believe since the financial crisis, uh, you deal in real estate. Do you see this as a risk pertaining to housing demand or not? Absolutely yeah, I, a risk. I, 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 let me just say, Cora, I think we covered that question. Uh, Abby covered that a while ago. Um, <clears throat> I don't think we need to go over that. Uh, there'll be a replay available. I, I don't mean to be rude, but there's like a thousand. You're, you're good, George. You're good. But, but I, I didn't read there, there are a thousand people in the room, and in deference to their time, I don't want to. I don't want Ivy to repeat herself. So thanks for the question. Please listen to the replay. Let's go to Invest Two, and then John. Invest Two, please unmute yourself. Hi, George. Thank you for the space, Ivy. It's a pleasure to um, have you on today. I had a quick question regarding. Um, I know predictions. They say predictions are difficult, especially about the future, but. Um, um, in regards to what you think will happen next year and the following year, does that assume overall economic growth or does it also assume we will go into overall macroeconomic recession with job losses? Great question. And right, right now, because we're not economists, we're using the current state of the economy. So it, it really doesn't assume um, a more negative impact from an economic downturn or more severe recession. So we're really looking at current job growth, what we're seeing in level of, you know, mortgage rates today where they are and what's priced in on the forward yield curve. So we're not really using any outlook other than what right now is the current state of the economy. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for joining. All right. And I think the last question is going to go to, uh, who are we looking at here? To John. John, the floor is yours. Please unmute yourself. Thanks, George. Really appreciate the spaces. And also, Ivy, thanks so much for being here today. Um, quick question about it, basically on the theme of, you know, comparative jurisdictions for real estate. Um, is there an analyst or do you have a view on what might be likely to happen with California Prop 13? Thank you. You know, I think today that is a significant disincentive to consumers in California to move and obviously a big reset on their taxes. So I don't know if Prop 13, you know, from legislative there, legislators there will come up for any type of change, but we're not factoring anything in. The one thing about regulation I want to highlight is, George, I know you wanted to ask about regulation. I'm just going to mention that there's a growing level of concern around the institutional landlords that we've all heard about and putting some type of moratorium around their ability to purchase homes in certain uh, local municipalities. Um, and that's one thing, George, you asked me, and I didn't think there was much coming, but there could be some curtailment of the ability for uh, non-primary buyers, including private investors, to purchase homes. But back to the local jurisdiction in California and what happens with Prop 13, 
Um, I really don't have any insight there, John, but thank you for the question. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for that, Sean. All right. So, Ivy, um, you've been so generous with your time. We've been going out. I am going to go because I, I have, I no, have, to, no, I have I to run, I but I really I, had a lot of fun. No, no I, I, Ivy, use can leave now. This is great. You stayed far <laughs> longer, far longer than I thought. I thought we'd only get you for an hour. This is you, you've more than done more than enough. We are going to. Since we're a bunch of financial deviants, we're going to hang out here and talk. We're going All to talk. right. Well, anyway, thank you so much. One yeah. thing I was going to mention, we do host a housing summit. It's going to be our last virtual one. Um, and we had a tough decision when it was uh, surging. And if anyone that's a Georgia Noble listener on this great podcast, Noble, we'll give you a 25% um, discount and just reach out to Pam at ZellmanAssociates.com or Kim if you're interested. But it's a, it's a summit that Typically, we'd have a few, like 600, 700 people in, uh, in, in attendance in person because what we like to do is have panels where we're bringing executives, C-suite executives in each of our silos within our ecosystem, whether it be mortgage, all the things I mentioned, new construction, existing home sales, home improvement. And uh, I moderate along with my colleagues panels, and we don't let these guys off with softball questions. And I think it really becomes very engaging. We have uh, really phenomenal guest keynote speakers and um, I think you'll find that Dennis McGill, my co-founder and real brains on the team, is a genius. And he opens with a significant state of the nation of themes that we're going to see on a go forward basis that I think is the favorite of the conference. So we've been doing it 15 years, but please, you know, just mention you, you were a listener with George on No Bull and we'll give you a discount. Ivy, that's fantastic. And I'll be sure to, to, to tweet it out. Uh, again, Ivy, we've learned so much from, from you. I hope some you'll consider coming back in the future. This has been Absolutely. Awesome. And George, we'll follow up. But thank yeah. you, everybody. Have a Terrific. great day. Thank, thank you, you, Ivy. Dismissed. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, Dr. Anas, I sent you the mic. You want to come up and give us a Biden-Saudi update? Yeah, so Aces, that's a great idea. Um, I say we go for another 25 minutes to 115 Eastern. And then I want to close the room because it's just, I don't know, it's, these things say we come marathons. People here are so full of information and go forever. We know how that works. But Dr. Anas, great to see you. Hey, uh, good morning, man. everyone. What's going on? What's going on, Dr. Anas? A uh, couple of things, basically. Uh, the first one is we have uh, about six weeks ago on a show, um, on your show here, on your space with three aces, um, I mentioned that uh, uh, Lavrov visit to Saudi Arabia basically was pure economics and uh, they are arranging some deals, some oil deals. And this was important because those who were ultra bullish on oil, they assumed that uh, Russian exports would decline substantially. What they did not know is that Russia is making deals with um, OPEC plus members to export oil to them so they can use it in their domestic market and then they can re-export the saved oil. Uh, if you recall, th that was about six weeks ago and some people did not like it. Well, today we have a confirmation and Reuters basically published a report uh, how Saudi Arabia imported uh, or doubled the amount of fuel oil imported from Russia and that allowed them basically to export more. Uh, this is happening in the UAE and Algeria and everyone else. So some of you might recall that talk about six weeks ago. Uh, the the other point, and I think this is extremely important, especially in terms of politics. As you know, um, President Biden is in Israel and he's going to go to Saudi Arabia. 
And President Biden insisted he is not going there uh, uh, to meet MBS or King Salman. He is going there to to an international conference. This makes a big difference in terms of who is going to receive him at the airport. I know some people who are uh, uh, against Biden. They are going to use the pictures and the videos against Biden administration. But this is really the actual protocol. Since he is not invited by MBS, and since he is not the guest of MBS and the king, then the king and MBS are not going to receive him at the airport. So he's going to be received by a senior official. But people must understand that is the protocol. This has nothing to do with any political implications or the behavior of MBS or anything else. This is just pure protocol. And the Saudis and their protocol, they have uh, other things like the uh, uh, if they have a guest coming from overseas, they adopt their policies, which means that if MBS or King Salman came into the United States and the United States protocol does not allow President Biden to go to the airport and receive them, the Saudis will do exactly the same. So the point here is I urge everyone not to take this, uh, the extra step and say, well, look, it, it was um, uh, uh, the deputy governor of uh, uh, the Western province uh, who received him. It wasn't MBS. It's, uh, this is just pure protocol. Thanks, Dr. Thank Nassim. you, Dr. Yeah. Dr. Nassim, and again, for those of you who don't know him, although he needs no introduction, Dr. Nass is like one of the world's leading experts uh, on, on energy markets. We've been so blessed to have him in these rooms the last few months and help us lead the way, um, show us the way. And, you know, I can say it. Uh, he's he's too modest, but, you know, there's a lot of – listen, none of us have a monopoly on the truth. We get some right, we get some wrong. But against the backdrop of the relentless, relentless cheerleading of our energy friends north of the border – uh, he kind of sounded a note of caution and was, you know, when everything is up and to the left, he, up and to the right, he's like, well, maybe not. And aces, I don't know if you want to flesh that out a little bit, but I really want to salute uh, Dr. Anas along with Michael Belk and Tommy Thornton for getting this very, very right. And um, so no pressure, Dr. Anas, but, you know, uh, <laughs> you've forgotten more about the subject than we'll ever know. So, that was then, now was now. You nailed it. Um, what are you thinking now? I mean, from my my little seat where I look, and I'm just an energy tourist. I mean, I got out of the energy stocks a few weeks ago, thankfully, in part because of your advice. And now that the narrative is, you know, we possibly are going into a global recession. And given that the financial demand for oil is 40 or 50 times the size of the paper demand for oil, I'm not in any rush to get back in. And I think there's a lot of hot money in these stocks. And so, you know, having said all that, I mean, the long term. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the issue is, I mean, you said it in a very nice way. Uh, first of all, are we in a recession or we are heading for a recession? And uh, how deep the recession is? And if the recession is very deep, when OPEC Plus will intervene in the market and start cutting production? And this is a very important point, by the way, because when Lavrov visited Saudi Arabia about two months ago and uh, Bahrain, um, one of the things that being discussed was, okay, if we end up with a recession, Russia is on board with OPEC Plus to cut production, and Russia is willing to cut production by up to 2 million a day 
in case of a recession. So in a sense, they already set a floor. We don't know exactly what the floor is, but my guess is the floor is $60 Brent. Uh, mm-hmm. It could be higher. They are First, they are going to defend the 90. So the, the 90 is kind of the first red line for them. But in case of recession, they cannot defend that. So it's going to go lower. Uh, how deep the recession is, we don't know. But in case it is very deep and we go below 60, I think they are going to start cutting production again. And the Russian commitment is very uh, clear. The OPEC alliance is stronger than ever. Uh, the Biden administration tried to break it, but they misunderstood what that alliance is because they thought it's only about oil. Really, uh, as we mentioned uh, in previous spaces, uh, this is way more than oil. It's been known since 2017 that this is way more than oil. Uh, as you uh, all know, or most of you know, that when the Saudis got stuck on the Yemen issue, it was Putin who uh, used the veto power in the UN Security Council to stand with the Saudis. It was Putin who uh, stood up against the climate change resolution at the UN Security Council because that UN resolution uh, on climate change would have literally destroyed the economies of the oil-producing countries. Biden cannot afford these things to the Saudis. Uh, a final comment on this is uh, Biden visit to Saudi Arabia this, uh, has nothing to do with oil. Uh, oil is a secondary issue, uh, but the administration have no choice but to say what Jack Sullivan said. Oh, we are going to pressure the Saudis to increase output. But they have no other statement to say. That's it. I mean, they have to. Uh, that's one point. The other, uh, the other point is... It is possible for the Saudis to increase supplies as kind of they can extend an olive branch to Biden and say the following. We are going to extend supplies in the fourth quarter of this year. That means the oil is going to arrive in the market after the elections. And Biden knows that. So why waste uh, uh, political capital uh, trying to force them to do anything before that. So probably this is going to be a secondary issue. The Saudis might say we are going to increase supplies in the fourth quarter. And notice that I said supplies. I did not say production because production is one thing. Supply is another. And uh, UAE, Kuwait, Iraq and Saudi Arabia can add north of 700,000 barrels a day of supplies, not production, of supplies in the fourth quarter. If we have a recession, it's a crisis because adding that amount is a problem, but they may not add it at all if they found out we are in, in a recession. Back to you. Thanks, Dr. Hey, hey George, George, some breaking news. Yeah. Mario, Mario Draghi just resigned. Boom! Another one falls. I'm trying to get justice up, Bobby J, but he won't. He's in and out. He won't take the mic. Yeah, I mean, look, look, the, 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 the fault lines are starting to really – get stretched here i mean you and i were going back and forth this morning something's going to break you know euro yen it's all it's all coming apart so you know there will be there will be casualties along the way so just talk to this one so aces who's up to speak next aces who is it wait uh, carice hey my brother come on up my man well, Emma had her hand up before me. You guys just brought me up. I do have no, a question. No, Emma's okay. been speaking. Emma gets – she's already spoken. She'll talk in when she wants to. Chris, you got a question? Yes. I've 
uh, before I start my question, I just want to say thank you for what you do. I learned so much in the last like couple of times I've been in this space about a myriad of financial issues. Um, I'm a local elected official in Utah, and um, and for me, uh, these issues matter to my people. And I wish more elected officials would actually listen to financial people <laughs> about the, what they what their views on things. But with that said, my question revolves around simply. When it comes to inflation, ACEs, you had said something that was like groundbreaking, but I can't remember all of it. But it was like in regards to like tracking aspects of um, if we're going to get into a recession and using gold yields and things of that nature. Um, I, I, I mean, that's the type of thing I'm trying to do an outlook on, because like when you talk about taxation on your communities, especially, you know, if, uh, the only level in Utah we have for taxes is, is property tax, of course. So I want to be a good steward of those taxes, but I have to have the municipality right run at a, a way that, you know, lean, not over, like over bloated of a budget, but at the same time, not not accounting for inflation or recessionary curves so I could best serve my residents. So sure. can you talk a little bit about that? That'd hey, be great. Hey, Carice, we've got only a couple of minutes left in this space. Do me a favor, look in the nest, okay? There's a gentleman there by the name of Michael Cantro. Everything that I talk about on sixes is stolen from him. So do me this favor, follow him, read everything on his timeline for the past two weeks, and then the next time you see me in a smaller space to where we don't have thousands of people and an agenda here, I'll be happy to give you a master class. Deal? Thank you so much. Anytime, my brother. I think Gordon's next, Jordan. Gordon, what's up, man? Uh, <clears throat> hey, guys. Um, just a real quick question. Interesting thesis I heard yesterday, actually, a, a bear thesis on uh, gas prices. <clears throat> um, if you look at three, two, one crack spreads over, over a long period of time, they're up pretty significantly. And in short, the theory is that, um, you know, as that spread contracts, um, it's going to have a very negative effect on uh, gas prices in the back half of this year. Um, just wanted to know if anybody had looked at that, anybody's thought about that. Thanks for the question. I think that's an anos thing. Hey, doctor, do we have that gas? Yes. Will you repeat the question again, please? Yeah, so the thesis is that if you look at three, two, one crack spreads, like, you know, if you look at them since, I don't know, go back to 2009, um, and you look at where they're at now, they're, they're, they're very high. So the thesis is as they normalize, so too will crude derivatives, like gas, et cetera. So if the price of crude can stay high, but the price of gas, diesel, jet fuel, et cetera, falls, um, number one, you'll have, you know, a fall in those prices, but number two, It'll actually bring down inflation, and thus a lot of the guys out there calling for excessive inflation could be proven wrong by this dynamic. Um, and I haven't heard anybody talk about this, but a smart guy brought this, this thesis up to me yesterday. So just wanted to see if anybody had thought about that. Uh, the, uh, the refining industry went through this so many times in the past, so this is not uh, new to them. And refiners can play several games uh, especially the more sophisticated refiners, refineries, they can literally switch the crude quality to get different cracks uh, out of them. So they can, uh, even in the worst, play that. 
and play the crude quality uh, issue. The issue becomes a problem for the simple refiners who have no other choices uh, in terms of crude quality. Back to you. Thank you. The other so, thing I would say, Gordon, is if you have a time, reach out to Doomberg. Doomberg has a library of content, all custom researched and put together on his Substack. I don't know that there's a better source on planet Earth who's been talking about this stuff in detail for six, nine months or so. Um, and, you know, if you need some help getting through some of this content, I'm a pro subscriber, happy to help. Gord, you got a follow-up? Gord? Sorry, that was a mistake. Thank you. No worries. Yep. Anytime, so, so I don't know, Aces, what else you want to talk about? I mean, it's a little over two hours. I mean, go back to the, you know, go back to the monologue maybe at the beginning. As you and I were talking earlier today, I mean, something's going to break. It is breaking. Things are fraying. Um, I see the euro now. Is, we're, we're through parity. Uh, you know, DXY is a 108.90. Um, interestingly, bond yield up today to 297, despite the fact markets are getting schmiced, which is not good for equity. So I'm um, just looking at my screen here. Kind of interesting how energy stocks go weakness to weakness. They're just getting absolutely destroyed. Absolutely destroyed. Um, and, you know, it's funny, tongue-in-cheek, in, uh, in looking at my feed this morning, um, how should we say, as you're, as, you're, as, you're, as you're aware, Aces, energy happens to be a topic where there are some, how shall we say, uh, some rather energized points of view uh, on the commodity. Some people feel very strongly about it. And um, I had the temerity to uh, repost Michael Belkin's call from um, the middle of June, June 20th, where he said it was entitled Genesis of Energy Price Top, and he had tomatoes thrown at him. And then I, I put a follow-up tweet in case any of you are wondering if Belkin still has energy as a short, and I put I excerpted uh, Michael's comments on energy from Monday this week, and the reality is he still has his energy as his top short uh, pick uh, in, in the market. And, um, you know, sometimes we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong. Hats off to, to, to Belkin, to you, to Tommy Thornton. Um, you know, we're going to make a lot of mistakes. I just wish everyone would treat others with humility and respect, whether they get it right or they get it wrong. Uh, so, and I, I'm not going to mention names, but um, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but what the hell, since when did that ever stop me? Um, I know the point I was going to start to make, which was um, talking about the Twitter mob. And someone was making the point uh, about how, um, you know, there's a lot of fin twit energy bulls out there and it's consensus trade, not a consensus trade. And so I paraphrase that line from Kramer, you know, which is uh, guys, you know, not Jay's a disaster, but he's got that line he always uses on his shows. Some of the effect There's always a bull market somewhere. And my job is to find it and help you make money. And so I took it and play on words. I put, there's always a Twitter mob somewhere. And my job is to find it and help you make money. And that means going with the crowd on the way up or going fading it when it goes the other way. 
Um, usually when there's a Twitter mob, usually at some point they're going to wind up being the wrong way. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, something George Soros wrote many years ago in one of his books. He spoke about the way, way to make real money in a market is figure out, I mean, you don't, you don't want to be contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. That's just stupid. Um, you want to go with the flow most of the time. But the way you make real money is you figure out what it is that the market believes that you think is not true. In other words, where you have a variant perception. What does the market believe that's not true? What does the market believe that's a, that's a lie? What does the market believe that's not sustainable? And then more importantly, try to figure out when will they realize they've been had? When are the tables about to turn? And just when you're on the cusp of that, that's when the landslide starts and you go the other way. And, you know, you were a little bit early. Maybe Michael Belkin was a little bit late. doesn't matter. I mean, Tommy Thorne was probably more right than any of us. But, man, man, did, 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 was that sure in spades this time around the track. So, Aces, let me ask you. Um, I know you're not short energy. I don't think you ever shorted energy. It merely was an expression that you thought it was overcooked. And, you know, time for correction. And it's kind of the way I thought as well. But now with any um, stocks having gotten absolutely destroyed, absolutely destroyed, um, what are you thinking here? You got any appetite that you want to nibble? Or do you want to see the charts uh, bottom out? Do you want to see people start to figure out that what the recession is going to look like, that are, how long it will be, how shallow it will be? Like, How do you think about energy stocks here, Aces? Because on the one hand, you know, you could say, Calling it short a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, that was an easy call, hard call, whatever. But the fact of the matter is, prices are down a lot now. So, if you were entering the market today and you, you don't get you don't get to take a victory lap because you're aces and you called the short correctly three months ago, and you're not an idiot because you bought them like Kramer did, you know, three weeks ago, clean sheet of paper, new client, hundred million bucks. What would you be doing with energy stocks now? Would you be buying any? Would you be waiting to see how it plays out? Like, well, where's your head at on this energy trade right now, Aces? Well, I mean, first of all, you know, uh, energy diesel is my single largest operating expense by a factor of three or four. Okay. So it's very material to my day-to-day life and stuff like that. Um, but personally, I mean... In the commodity space, George, in, in the mining space, in the resource space, very few people understand this. Very few people pay attention to it. I almost I don't hear anybody talking about it. The the value to a company in in the industry, in, in the resource, in the materials industry, the operating leverage comes from the grade of material, not the commodity price, right? So in my business now, if I can get the head grade of my you know, grams per ton going into my machines from one and three quarters grams per ton to two and a quarter. The operating leverage in that is far better and far more, you know, uh, interesting than, you know, gold going from 1800 to 1950 kind of thing. Right. So, so if I'm going to do anything in materials, I'm going after the best grades on the planet. Right. And the best grades on the planet are in the Permian Basin. So the stock there, that's my favorite, is a company called Diamondback Energy. That's my go-to stock whenever I want oil exposure. The symbol is F-A-N-G. 83% gross margins, 45% earnings, you know, free cash flow margin. I mean, it's just the 
poster child for, you know, you know, the, the preeminent number one resource company in the world, in my opinion. <clears throat> so, you know, that that's my focus is on, on, the, on the good stuff, on the good grades, because they're they have the best oil in the world coming out of that place. But, but Ace, um, you know, it's really amazing. I'm looking at the yeah. chart. It's yeah. ugly. I mean, it's a great company. Crush. But as we know, right. but as a stock, I'm looking at it. This thing has gone down so fast. All right. It's gone down. It peaked at 160. It had a spike peak at 160. Uh, 160, closing peak of a 160 and 40 cents on June 7th. So five weeks ago. All right. And I pull up the chart. You know, it's gone. It's at 104 right now. So it's gone. It's had a you know, 33% off sale. It's it's back to where it was despite – think about this, Aces. Despite all the hullabaloo and all the song and dance, okay, this stock has, has fallen all the way back to where it was last October. So despite all the cheerleading and the pom-poms for the last, you know, eight months, nine months, stock's gone nowhere, which to me is kind of mind-boggling. I mean, what do you, how do you think about that? Well, I think welcome to my world for the last 12, 14 years being in the mining industry. It's crazy. It's feast or famine. One day you're picking out Gulf streams. The next day they're coming for your refrigerator. It's been going on forever, right? So, so basically that's why I use the public markets is to offset that cyclicality in my personal business. I'm a short seller, right? So, um, listen, it was 45.50 when Numbnuts announced the closure of uh, the, the Keystone Pipeline XL. It was 50 bucks and it went to 160, right? That was one of the reasons why I was like, kind of just, there's just no way, all right? Now, here's the thing. Dr. Anas has nailed this to the T, to the T for six months. You know, oil, you know, because you know, the maxis, which by the way, George, and if we're honest with ourselves, from tulips to oil and gas to Bitcoin, I have never seen a maxi shill, you know, crowd make it out of a trade alive. And we've been saying that now for a little bit of a while there, right? Like you just were kind of touching on, right? So never, I've never in the history of the market seen a maxi crowd come out of a trade in one piece. And that's what you got here, right? So, but the reality of it is, is if, if, you know, everybody's superimposing the horror story of ESG, Everybody's superimposing the horror story of this administration and policy and energy and stuff like that, right? And they're 100% correct in, in assessing those risks to the hydrocarbon complex. But it's just not the right time. You know, Dr. Anats has been publishing one, one, one chart after the next saying, yes, you know, supply is down. But on a demand-adjusted basis, it's in a 40-year range. You know, so so, you know, I mean, we hear the oil ministers in various countries, the market's well supplied. You know, you don't see these oil and gas guys out doing huge mergers and acquisitions and buying acreage and stuff like we used to when oil would get to 70, 80, 90, 100 bucks a barrel. Remember all those deals they used to go off when oil and gas would hit 70, 80 bucks? Boom, you start to one after the next, all the acreage plays and Aubrey McLennan and all that stuff. We haven't seen any of it. 100%. So, 100%. Right. so I'm following those guys, not the storytellers. So Fang, you know, again, it's still up a hundred and some odd percent in less than a year. 
you know, maybe start nibbling on it. I don't know. It seems a little early to me, um, especially, you know, just one, one little thing on Cantro, if you don't mind. So on the CPI stuff, right? So everybody's running around talking about the CPI um, and, and basically, um, you know, so what Cantro has been saying now for ever, but most recently, you know, very emphatically, is that forget about year-over-year CPI. Forget it. It's a waste of time. You got to look at month over month. And he's saying in order for CPI to get to a range to where it's in the zone, it needs to be point, you know, 25 basis points month over month. If people, if anybody here has looked at the month over month CPI print yesterday, it's 130 basis points. So just as a little bit of a barometer in terms of expectations about peak inflation and pivots and pauses and all that stuff, we need inflation to come down 80% month over month to get anywhere near that conversation. I just had a plug cancho there because he, like Dr. Anat and you, have been one home run after the next, spot on, predictive, and, you know, I, I like to acknowledge people who, who are right because we get on these faces and we get on Twitter and people make good calls and bad calls, but nobody comes back and says, hey, these are the guys who are getting it right, you know? So I just wanted to put that out there. Uh, you're, that, let's, listen, Ace is very kind to you. God only knows I've probably made more mistakes than anybody in this room because I'm older than anybody. And um, it's nice to get, get it right once in a while and, this year we've gotten a lot right. Trust me, there have been years I've been pretty wrong. But everything I look at, what I really like about this room, hey, by the way, Bobby Jay's here. Get him up. Aces, he's down there. Get him Get him an invite. And KFAB's I've been too. trying. I've been trying to get both of them, but they're not being – they're being – All right. But, but, but at any rate, at any rate, um, there's a lot happening right now, a lot coming together, a lot to do. A lot of ways to lose, as far as I can tell. We got KFAB here. This is great. And the glass half empty crowd just, they're in denial. They just, you know, they don't want to open up their statements. They think it's going to go away. And, you know, you and I aren't making this stuff up. Every week, every, every day, every week, a new disaster presents itself. And, you know, just when you think you run out of bear arguments, comes in, it comes a few more. And I'll go back to what I said a couple hours ago, and I just said it the other day in the room as well. Is there anybody that I respect who's bullish? who's in my sort of, you know, council of senior advisors or whatever? And the answer is no. So maybe they're stupid. I don't know. But when the facts change, I, I change. What do you do, sir? You know, John Maynard Keynes, please call your office. Uh, KFAB, you got something to say for yourself? Welcome, KFAB. Hey, George. Hi, everybody. Um, I, I, you know, I'm so struck with the last two spaces um, because they were – in two domains that, you know, I, I kind of like, like you say, George, I'm a tourist uh, with, with, with Larry, with kind of the geopolitical piece. Um, and then uh, today with, with the real estate market and where, where I think I bring value is kind of the top down, um, you know, the different silos and putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And I was struck today by the comment late in the in the discussion that her, her base case was was basically assuming you know kind of everything's okay 
And, and that sounds fairly ominous, even in an okay scenario, right? And you and I, Georgia, talked about this. In an okay scenario with earnings, it's, it's really bad, just with margins going back to reasonable levels. Um, no one, and again, I, even with you, George, I, 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 I still am just taken aback by how hard it is for people to get their minds around the fact that the base case here is an ominous one. That's the base case. Just because, I mean, and, and that the comments about the velocity of things, that's the kind of thing that piques my interest. I'm starting to see that across different things, um, different domains in the economy, globally. And all of these things are happening coincidentally. And as I've been saying, what the pandemic did is that it hit a reboot button. It's like everyone, every global economy, every region, unplug their economic business cycle router all at the same time and plug them back in. So whereas you normally have business cycle diversity, like in 08 when you know China and India were okay, you don't have that right now. There's no engine that is dispersed, uh, dispersing from the global business cycle. And you know all of these scenarios, I, I, I try to push people and say, okay, what if there's a global recession? And no one wants to talk about it. Uh, what what's your base case if it's a glo a severe global recession, and you know because it, to me that's not esoteric like that's becoming the base case that's what Larry said on Tuesday it's like okay well what does that mean G given what we just heard today on real estate market what, what does a gl a severe global recession mean to that domain hundred percent uh, Kfab hundred percent one of the reasons I really like you is respect you as you think outside the box i mean people just they don't want to go there it's not the way their minds work and no you're you're spot on you are you are 100 percent. and it's it's uh I don't, I don't want to go there either george but that, i know but you but, but you got <laughs> you know but, what i mean it's like not not fun stuff but i consider you to be a realist not a pessimist it's like the down cards are being turned up one by one and it don't look too good so you know anyway let me change subjects here completely for one second so we're going to have a kind of an open mic thing here for the next few minutes. So we had some really, really excellent rooms. I mean, I don't know about you, but just I'm in love. I mean, uh, <laughs> Ivy can come in here anytime she wants to talk housing as far as I'm concerned. And Larry, I mean, just phenomenal. Um, so many great people out there. And we've had a lot of great rooms. And so I'm trying to figure out the direction we're going to go next. And... If anyone has a suggestion, uh, wants to raise their hand, nominate a couple people, uh, come on up and tell me why. Uh, not just because he's a good guy, but if there's some sort of differentiated um, uh, point of view that would be uh, helpful. Um, I have a few names here I'm just going to throw out to the crowd if any of this resonates with anybody. Um, I'm trying to get John Hussman. I think he would be a terrific uh, speaker. Uh, Fred Hickey, who um, um, has been around a long while. He's a he's a precious metals guy, but he's a really smart tech guy. Don Cox, retired, former strategist from BMO. Stan Weinstein was a huge hit a few months ago. I thought we might get him back. Chris Verone. Former colleague of mine from Fidelity, Urian Timmer. Joel Chillinghast, who runs the Fidelity Low Price Stock Fund, or at least has run the fund and is retiring or has retired. Rich Bernstein, uh, Rosen, David Rosenberg, but I don't know. Rosie's pretty well exposed. I don't know how much new we're going to learn from him, but 
might be nice to have him stop by anyway. Uh, Jer- hold up, I mean, let me get to the end, and then you can weigh in. Uh, Jeremy Grantham. Albert Edwards. And there's a name, really smart guy. Uh, works for SockGen out of London. Uh, Banks, uh, Gerard Cassie, veteran uh, bank analyst. Grant Williams. Grant's always interviewing people, but I want to interview Grant. Uh, Grant was interviewed by Michael Gayad uh, in a in a in a uh, uh, space earlier this week. I urge everyone to go. Actually, the interview was done a couple weeks ago. I urge everyone to go listen to that because Grant is brilliant. And then, do I dare say? And people can say George. Why? Um, Greg Foss. He's a maxi, Bitcoin maxi, but he's a sensible guy. And he has a background in fixed income markets and has this cockamamie valuation framework for Bitcoin looking at his sort of like CDS and the dollar. So there's, I don't know, a dozen or so names sort of top of mind of potential uh, speakers um, uh, for an upcoming space. If any of those, if anyone wants to weigh in any of those names or anyone else has another name they'd like to suggest. Uh, please have at it. Carpathia, I see you're up on the stage. Carpathia, what's up? No, I was just going to throw out, I, I, I don't know, Keith McCullough, Hedge Uh How should I? I'll, play, I'll be diplomatic. He and I don't see eye. All right, eye. that's good enough. Uh, we, I, no, I'm, I'm going to leave. You, you, you got any other ideas? Uh, I'll get back to you. I've got some ideas. Um, how about, um, I think his name is Mike from Cornerstone Analytics. He's on, he's, he was interviewed on Grant's podcast. So if I'm saying the first one. Wait, you're talk, you talking about my good friend, Mike Rothman? Yeah. Hey, okay, Mike, Mike Rothman, just so you know, I'm very good friends with Mike. We had, you're kind of new to this room, I know, Emma, but with Oliver Parsons, who's his sales guy, uh, stood in for Mike uh, and spoke in this room two or three months ago. Uh, Mike was a little bit resident, hesitant about uh, speaking in the space, gotcha. but but we'll we'll try to get it. It's a good it's a good idea. Maybe since Oliver had a good time here, and and, and reported back to Mike, and Mike heard the space, maybe he'll agree to show. But I agree, Mike is Mike Rothman is the best oil analyst that I follow. I don't try to count the barrels, try to go up prices. As we all know is a thankless task, but he does as good a job as anybody on it. So. Anyone, anyone else come to mind? Emma or Aces or yeah. KFAB or Gordon? Anyone else? Chano. Yeah, Chano's is great, obviously. Um, and then also, um, this one might raise hairs on or issues. Kyle Bass, a friend of mine, I can probably help get him on it. Can, can I ask you a question? I say this respectfully, Emma. I'll, I'll choose my words very carefully. Kyle's a very smart guy. Kyle's very eloquent. Um, do you... Do you have any sense of how good his investment ideas are or what his track record's like in terms of making money? Uh, his track record is actually pretty excellent in terms of making money. There's the, the media has his positioning wrong all the time. He's had one real bad one recently, but he didn't even let me invest in that special purpose vehicle, which is a short Hong Kong dollar. Uh, uh-huh. SPV using options so that you know there was a time there was an expiration date and it expired. Sure. Uh, but beyond that, like where everybody thought he was wrong, the the, the end, he actually wasn't. Um, we all know he did well during the 2008 housing crisis. Um, he did extremely well in Iceland. He predicted the collapse of the Icelandic banking system and then predicted the 2011 to 2013. Yeah, I, 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 I guess Emma. So he did pretty good. Pretty yeah, good. I mean, his, uh, public prediction is one. Have you actually seen his investment results? That's the question I'm asking. So I haven't certain. I haven't seen every single one of them. Let's put it that way. Okay. So 
you could have offsets that are worse than what I've seen. You know what I mean? Sure. Okay. Yeah. That, 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 that's, that's fair. That's fair. And, um, how about, how about what? Fleck and or Stephanie Pomboy? Okay. So, so Pomboy, actually, that's a great suggestion. Pomboy's on my list. Um, it's funny because I reached out to Grant a couple of months ago. I said, I want to interview you guys. And he's like, just me or Steph and me or whatever. So Pomboy, great idea, Carpathian. Who, what was the other name? Fleck and Sign. Yeah, Fleck's a good guy. I know Fleck. I can get him. He'll come on. All right. Um, good. All right. This is helpful. Any other thoughts? Comments? Well, one more. Peter Zihan. He's a geopolitical star. Oh, yeah. No, we got to get Peter in here. We'll do that. That's great. That's great. Um, no, this is excellent. I'm glad we got my, some more ideas here. Okay, my idea, yeah, my, my one idea, Georgia, because uh, yeah, you named a bunch of them, is um, Lakshman Achuthan from Ekri. You think you think he'd do it? I bet you he would. Okay. Yeah, uh, and if you want, I can kind of, I mean, I don't know him that well, but I could probably get a response from him at least. Yeah, you know, if you wouldn't mind running with that, that'd be great. If you have some contact with him, he's more likely to respond to you than I, but that, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. Okay, I'll, I'll find out. You know, it's funny, too, because um, I've been thinking a lot about these spaces, and, uh, you know, it's not everybody's cup of tea. I, I get it, uh, but I really value the long-form nature of these conversations because they can be meaningful. And listening to Grant Williams speak with Michael Guy the other day, that was one of the one of the values that he cherishes, and I'm totally with that. Uh, I, I don't want to get into these, you know, soundbite type things where things can be, you know, th thoughtful ideas. I mean, let's say on the one, if you can't explain it in a sentence, it's not worth explaining. But on the other hand, usually it's the detail, devils in the detail to understand the context. So I really value these rooms, and to me, it's extraordinary that. Um, so many of you uh, hang out in these rooms for such sustained periods of time. So definitely means something. Uh, and, you know, I just look at this room today. I think we've, I can't, I've lost track, but I think we've had over a thousand people. I don't know what the cumulative account is so far, but um, the turnout's just been phenomenal and the rooms keep getting better. So I want to thank all of you. Uh, anyone else got anything to say? Otherwise, I think we're going to close. Yeah, it. to George, I yeah. just want to say one thing, because I know you and Anas and Cantrell will never say anything to, to, to give yourself a pat on the back. But listen, I'm in these spaces at 10, 11 o'clock at night, um, you know, talking to people and they're coming in by the hundreds, okay? And I just want to let you know something in all seriousness, okay? Every other person that comes up is coming up and trying to communicate in a way, but they don't have the confidence to completely do it. And like one after the next the same and you know but george says this and george says that all in such a hundred percent just complimentary beautiful george i'm just telling you right now what you're doing here with these spaces and these guests and the way you're handling this you are having i'm telling you one of the most outstanding impacts on such a large group of people and turning them into financially literate people who can take care of themselves, their money, their families, and not get buried in shit by all that stuff that goes on on Wall Street and stuff. Uh, I just want to acknowledge that. Uh, 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 an uh, unbelievable uh, thing for humanity. Aces, aces. I'm uh, humbled. Um, I'm embarrassed. And everybody, he didn't. He, I didn't tell him to say that, and I didn't know he was going to say that. But it, it's that's the feedback. I got a lot of DMs from people, and that's what energizes me. Um, I talk too much. I'm not everybody's cup of tea. I understand that, but you can't please everybody. 
Uh, I just try to do what I think is right. And it is so gratifying to know that some people are benefiting from this. And I get, I get all these, you know, all my DMS and whatever. So thank you for saying that. And, um, you know, I get a lot out of this too, as I've said many a time, I, uh, look at the room today. Uh, you know, it's not just Ivy, but my God, you know, there's a fellow Michael from Boise, Idaho, a Bill. I have no idea who this guy is. I would never know him if it wasn't for spaces. You know, it comes out of nowhere. Um, our good mutual friend Jackson, I still don't know who he is, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's just extraordinary. So I try to give back. I, I benefited. I was in the right place at the right time. Um, and I try to give back some of what I've learned. And but I but I'm still learning. And so this is great. We help each other. We each bring different experiences and um uh, areas of competence uh to the table and we all are better for it so thank you for that aces and uh made this room continue to go from strength to strength all right so listen two and a half hours enough um this has been awesome uh i'm not sure what next week it, we might do something on the weekend we'll see um anyway it's been a great room i want to thank everybody aces emma kfib carpathia gordon dr anas everybody and ivy and those who already left this has been a phenomenal room we'll do it again have a great rest of the day take care everybody bye-bye rock and roll my brother thank you george bye-bye bye-bye take care george take care everybody